Welcome to the Gen X Mixtape, a nostalgic podcast dedicated to the art of making mixtapes and the Gen Xers who made them. This week's theme is magic, and Alan and I will be curating a mixtape featuring songs that reference this mysterious art. And uh, I, I think we got a nice exchange with a Billy Joel fan, didn't we, this week? We did, yes. Um, on Instagram, uh, Alex J. Scott, he, uh, he messaged us after listening to the Billy Joel Artist Spotlight. It, it was a wonderful uh, message. Um, it reads, Hello, I am a massive Billy Joel fan, and I just wanted to say that I loved the episode about him. It's clear you guys love Billy Joel, and that really showed throughout the whole episode. I have a couple of thoughts, if you'll oblige me. Firstly, I disagree that Street Life Serenade is his worst album. The Street Life Defender. Nice, nice. You don't find those often. (laughs) Uh, I love Souvenir, Last of the Big Time Spenders, and Weekend Song. I also may just be the biggest fan of Roberta on the entire planet. Now, that that kind of... I got a chuckle out of he that. He probably is the yeah, biggest he, fan of Roberta on the planet. There's no I, doubt. I'll yeah. concede that one. I, I absolutely. Uh, I think that that's a fantastic song. The only truly bad tracks on the album are, in my opinion, the instrumentals. Can't disagree with them there. As for the title of worst album, that needs to go to the bridge. Hmm. Running on ice is brutal, and half the album is just plain forgettable. I'm a Canadian, and while I'm a native English speaker, I spent 12 years learning French in public school. I can confirm that C'est is absolutely atrocious French <laughs> and is certainly uh, takes the cake as my least favorite Joel track. I, I like this guy. Yeah, thank you for verifying that. <laughs> I feel validated. Um, he has a lot of forgettable tracks, but this one is actively bad. Uh, anyways, I could talk about Billy Joel all day, so I need to wrap it up. Bottom line, I thoroughly enjoyed the episode, and I look forward to listening to the future ones. Thanks for making my Thursday so much better. That was very nice. Thank you for reaching out. That's what I I want more of that. So so please, please. uh, you don't have to agree with us. I mean, we've crapped all over, uh, well, not his favorite album, but an album that he enjoys. Right. And and he was able to defend his position. Now, The Bridge, I don't think, is one of Billy Joel's stronger albums in the entire uh, catalog. But, you know, like Running on Ice, it... It's a. It, it's not the strongest pop song, but it's it's kind of catchy. I well, you I know, know, it always reminds me of New Wave Police. Yeah, it just yeah. has that that. Uh, I, I don't know why. I mean, it's it's not reggae, which is what Sting often right. fell back on. But it, but it just has that vibe for me. And, yeah. No, um, I mean, I, I mean, definitely side one of the bridge is the stronger of the two. Side two is lackluster. But um, and and I, you know, I he and I uh, messaged back and forth for for a few. Uh, days and like I told him uh, in in response, um, first I, I was just I commended him on being such a fan of street life because we, you don't see that. But um, like I told him, you know, I, I'll take the bridge over Stormfront or River of Dreams just about any day. So, right, right, folks, please, we we you know this is what we want. So if you're willing and able, please do uh, you know begin a dialogue with us and. Uh, it, we can't uh, can't beg you enough, really. Beg, grovel, plead uh, to to leave us some reviews and and yep. uh, some five star ratings. If yeah, we have nineteen. Them. We're up to nineteen now on iTunes, and so I'd like to um, you know have a race to, a, a drive to twenty five, if you will. Well, I like that. So we do, we just need six more listeners. If you haven't had an opportunity to go on iTunes and give us a, a review. Uh, and again, if you want to write something, that's that's incredible. But just just clicking the the five stars really, really, really helps tremendously. And so, drive to twenty five. If we can get to twenty five ratings or reviews by next week, I will be a very happy man. Mm, that would be wonderful. 
Yeah, and, and you know, we're, I, I don't want to say we're running out of time. I mean, we, we still have well, quite a few weeks left, but season one is going to be coming to a close. So I'd really like to establish the, the widest fan base we can before we take leave, you know, for uh, the, the six months or, or so that we'll be, you know, off air. Well, hey, I, I got a question for you, Alan. Yes. Did, did you believe in magic as a kid? I mean, let me just preface that. I'm sure your parents took you to magic shows, right? Yes. Birthday parties. I don't know. We, we, we all had an experience where somebody was on stage and he was making coins disappear and pulling them out of people's ears and handkerchiefs and doves and all that type of stuff. Did you as a child believe that was magic or did you know that it was a sleight of hand trick? Uh, well, you know, uh, when I was very young, I definitely believed in it. Um, the, the change really occurred to me. It's a true story. Um, we were... I believe it was SeaWorld in Aurora. Um, I, I, I was very young, but I, I vaguely remember. I, I think it was SeaWorld. Uh, prior to one of the shows, uh, one of the you know the the Sea Life uh, shows, uh, they had a magician on stage, and he was entertaining the kids. Um, SeaWorld did that. I remember they had a mime as well before one of. This the is back when shows. Ohio Ohio had, had a SeaWorld. SeaWorld, yeah. There was a magician on stage, and he called up for a volunteer. And I was chosen, actually. I went up to the stage, and, um, you know, he, he, I don't remember the trick specifically, but th- there were a number of steps to it. And, um, you know, at the end of the, the trick, he said to me, uh, What is your, what, what's your favorite cookie? And I, you know, I, I was never, ch- I love chocolate chip cookies, but, but I'm a peanut butter junkie. So I said, Peanut butter cookies. And, the look on his face, I mean, it, it just went pale because obviously I was the first kid to ever not say chocolate chip. And he said, well, will chocolate chip work? And I said, well, I really want peanut butter. And he said, but, but I have a chocolate chip cookie here for you. And he pulls it out of whatever mechanism he was using. And I said, uh, that works. And I went back to my seat and, you know, the light bulb went off. And I thought to myself, this isn't magic yeah, because I would be holding could, a peanut butter cookie right, in my right, <laughs> yeah. Well, that's kind of, I mean, I'm sure maybe 60% or maybe even 75 would say chocolate, chocolate chip. chip yeah. But I would imagine there would be Oreo fans out there. Yeah, and uh, true. Animal well, Cracker yeah, fans out there. Uh, very true. But, I, you know, he. I think he, he phrased the question in such a way that it was, you know, home-baked. Right. You know what would have been the worst? Would have, it would have been oatmeal raisin. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that would have been the worst. Uh, but, no, I mean, I'm sure the trick worked for him nearly every time because what what kid other than me does not answer chocolate chip yeah, no, I gotcha. you know? but um no that that was a turning point in my belief in magic but i uh no it you know i'm still fascinated by it i mean some of the greats i you know i don't i would never have the patience or the the time to really try and study and figure out how how they do what they do but you know well, sleight of hand is it's just a I mean, it's just an amazing thing. That, that's what amazes me. Well, there are two parts to it. One, to be able to come up with the tricks to begin with, mm-hmm. the creativity to be able to come up with that, and then to be able to practice it to the point where you can, you know, present it flawlessly in front of a group of skeptics. Yes. Because um, anytime I go to a, not that I go to magic shows very often, but you know, if you're on a cruise, sometimes there's a magician, or if you go out to Vegas or whatever. Yeah. And there'll be a magician, and you know, I'm, I'm. I'm obviously know it's a trick and so I'm trying to figure out how they're performing the trick and you know that's that's a credit to that art is that you just can't usually find any way no. to describe it now there was that show where the, the the magician he wore a mask 
and he was divulging magician secrets. Do you remember that TV yes, show? Yes, yes, I do. And so, but that kind of ruined the fun of it. It did. I watched a few of those, and I thought, oh, okay, well, that's not as complex because they're usually it's like any type of like riddle when you finally have it solved for you, you realize, oh, it was obvious. Yeah. Um, but it kind of ruined the fun, so I quit it, watching that show. It did. I um. You know, I and like you, I, I find myself doing the same when I see a magic uh, show, a magician, you know, in in performance. I do. I spend so much time trying to figure out how it's done that I, I wish that I could stop uh, that that activity, that you know, that that brain work, and just just enjoy it. just enjoy the show. And and I find I, you know, I'm just too curious for my my own my own good. I suppose I, I can't not try and figure it out that which i don't think it kills the the event for me because you know i love riddles i love puzzles so you know trying to figure it out is in itself uh part of what i enjoy so much but it would be wonderful to go back to to your, your childhood and just experience magic again you know and for the wonder that it is do you ever see that pen and teller television show where they Penn and Teller would watch amateur magicians that came up with their own tricks, and Penn and Teller would have to guess how they achieved that trick. No, I've not. And seen there were, that. you know, certain, every so often there was a magician that would stump Penn and Teller, and they would be. Hmm. Really, but but they were, you know, Penn and Teller, of course, they've been doing magic for oh, decades, oh, yeah. and so uh, most of them they could usually figure out how yeah, they were doing. They're it. actually, I would I would say at, at least at this point in, in you know my my life, I would say that they're my favorites I've always wanted to see them live like yeah, go out to Vegas yeah. and have that opportunity but uh, does that is that streaming somewhere I've, I'm not familiar with the show I know you can find episodes on YouTube or at least people have uploaded clips on YouTube okay. it may be streaming somewhere as well but I know I've just caught a few hmm. yeah, I have here to and look there for on it. YouTube so. yeah, I love Penn and Teller just uh, they're so sarcastic I mean it's it just calls my name so. well it's uh, no secret from our discussion and of course if you read the title of the episode that, that today we're talking about magic or songs about magic um, my criteria for this I I stayed away from like the occult and you know witchy wizardy type stuff because I'm saving a lot of those titles for the Halloween episode which I, I figured I I have a few I do have a few um, but there are some that I just very notably refuse to use because of the Halloween episode that's coming up. I still don't have Puff the Magic Dragon. I've been trying to get I didn't, that. Yeah, I didn't I've been trying either. I've been trying to get Peter Paul and Mary on this podcast now for weeks, but um, you know, when we said that at some point we'll do a drug themed uh, <laughs> podcast, I figured uh, Puff can can wait. Um, no, I, I do have a few that deal with witchcraft or, or the like. Um, the majority though are a pretty standard fare. I mean, it's just all of mine actually have the word magic in the title, except for one. Okay, and of course, I included all the obvious ones because I figured you wouldn't, because you assumed that I would. So I made sure I put them on the list. I'm, I'm hoping, yeah, I, they're all my alternates. Uh, okay, you know, so many that I think our, our listeners would expect. They're all alternates, and I was hoping that you did that. But you know, if if you are missing one, I, I expect we'll have a, at least a couple of matches. So yeah, um, they're there in reserve. But um, some of mine do. I would say about a third of mine do not have magic in the title okay. um, because I, I was trying to branch out. What I was doing this time, um, and, and you should appreciate this because you know I'm the lyrics first guy, I was really just trying to pull songs that musically I would want to listen to. I mean, there's a wide, a very eclectic, very you know diverse selection of songs here that musically they just catch the ear. So I'm hoping that um, you know, I, I did well with that because they, they just... They're, some of them are very unconventional recordings. Um, none of them are really obscure, but it's just, I don't know, I, I usually go lyrics. And this time, 
I tried to find a balance, a happy medium between that. So, yeah, some some songs I think might surprise you. Yeah, yeah. mine worked out. I, most of these, if not all of them, I like a lot musically. So yeah. it just worked out well that for whatever reason, magic songs lend themselves to, I don't know, songs I like musically. But um, magic, there are a couple cases maybe where magic, literally, they're literally talking about the art of magic or magic tricks. A lot of them are, of course, just the kind of a metaphorical magic, something that's special or something that's right. unique and that type of. Right. Uh, and so many of them are love songs, right? Really. Right. Um, right. But yeah, it's it's it runs the gambit for me. I have I have songs that that really draw upon magic in every imaginable way. So it, it's going to be a very interesting episode, I think. Yeah, I think so. Um, do you have any idea whose turn it is to go? Because I don't think we wrote it down again last time. No, I. Last week what, was it was the TV uh, remote. Yeah, it was remote control part two. Part two. Which I think I started with Hill Street Blues. Did I begin then with that one? Was that the first? Yeah, I think I th- it was. Yeah, I think yeah. it was. Okay, so okay. why don't you go? Um, why don't you make a note right now that you go first next time? But then I'll lose the note. But <laughs> well, okay. Well, yeah, that's that's Dave true. Dave goes well. first next time. <laughs> All okay. Right. Well, my first song. Uh, we're going back to the 1950s here. Uh, this particular song was released in 1956, and it is by a Cleveland native. Uh, his name was his his birth name was Jalacy Hawkins. Oh, congratulations! You've taken one from my Halloween list. Did I? That's I, okay. I apologize. <laughs> That's all right. Um, yeah, uh, you know he he's better known to the masses as Screaming Jay Hawkins. Can you use an alternate version of a song? We didn't establish that. Like, could you use Credence's version of the song for the Halloween episode? Why not? I don't know. Absolutely. Anyway, anyway. yeah, I'd say yes. I have a lot. I have so many Halloween songs. Yeah. So it's not gonna um, well, you know, I put a spell on you. Of course, is the song that I'm I'm referencing, and you know, Jay Hawkins. He he is a great example where songs can really be mixed blessings. Um, you know, he he originally, um, you know, he had, he had this bold baritone voice with an extraordinary range. He initially um, he he really wanted to be an opera singer. And when that, when you know, his ambitions failed in that respect, he became a bluesman. Uh, but you know, blues singers in the '50s were a dime a dozen. So he was looking for some kind of gimmick. And um, you know, as a bluesman, he wrote songs about hard times, drinking, witchy women, cursed men, all of which were standard fare for the 1950s. But then in 1956, he wrote a ballad that reversed the gender roles. Um, you know, it, this was one of the few where you know it's not the femme fatale; rather, it's it's the the male, the, the the singer of the song, who is really the the dangerous entity. Um, the song was about a dangerous man. He he uses a spell to win the favor of his unrequited love, and and the song, um, you know, originally released, um, it was just a, a you know a very peaceful, very tame ballad. But then he changed labels. Uh, he began recording under the Oka label, and they wanted something very. Uh, menacing, you know, very uh, dangerous, I suppose, because they were trying to sell to that teenage audience. So um, wanting that weird sounding uh, record, they actually gave Jay Hawkins and the session musicians liquor. They, they just got them good and drunk prior to the recording session. And, um, you know, they created this party atmosphere. So when finished, the recording actually turned out to be this wild horror howl. I mean, it was it was certain to be shelved, right? And, you know, the, but, but Oka, the, the record label, they liked it. And, you know, the staggering funeral march of a ditty, this, this pushed along, um, you know, it's pushed along by, by a plaintive plunking banjo. 
So, you know, finally, Jay Hawkins had his gimmick, if you will. Um, and, and in that same moment, you know, the, the horror rock genre was born. Um, Hawkins performed the ghoulish version for the first time at a Christmas concert uh, staged by Cleveland DJ Alan Freed in 1956. Freed actually dared Hawkins to appear in his show in a coffin and dressed as a voodoo priest. And Hawkins refused, uh, very, you know, wisely saying that no black dude gets into a coffin alive because they don't expect to get out. But uh, Freed then added a $300 incentive to the proposition and Hawkins changed his mind. So Hawkins, you know, in time, he developed this entire persona and this bizarre stage show. He, you know, he was a voodoo priest and he emerged from a flaming coffin, no less, wielding a skull and a stick that he named Henry. And, you know, from this point on, he became, he became a full-time horror rock performer and, you know, his style is been appropriated by Screaming Lord Such, Kiss, Alice Cooper, Marilyn Manson, and the, the list just goes on from there. But for Hawkins, you know, there was a price to pay because Gone was the sophisticated balladeer that he wanted to be. So I, I put a spell on you became both a way to earn a living and a cross to bear. I put a spell on you. Because of mine Stop the things you do <laughs> What's up? And radio stations, of course, they refused to play the song, uh, citing the overt sexuality of Hawkins' grunts and groans. It really didn't help that the song became synonymous with the occult through Hawkins' stage performances, but the, the record label, did, they did release a second version of the single, um, and they removed most of the grunts that had embellished the original performance. Nonetheless, it remained banned from radio in most areas, and, and furthermore, the recording attracted the ire of groups such as the NAACP, which worried that the act would reflect badly on African Americans. What year was this again? Did you mention 56. That? 56. 56, okay, 56 yeah. Um, so Hawkins, you know, he later credited all this uproar uh, for the boost in sales because um, due to the perceived taboo nature of the performance, the, the record, even though it never charted, was never released, received no airplay, it sold over a million copies. Mm. And, you know, since that time, you know, it, it's just become a cult curiosity, and it's a, it's a favorite recording come Halloween ever since. So yeah, I, I totally get why I would have stolen that from you just now. Um, Hawkins was never happy about the persona assigned to him by the label, though. Um, he said many times that, you know, if it were up to him, he wouldn't be screaming Jay Hawkins. He, he liked to point out that James Brown did an awful lot of screaming, but, you know, he was never called screaming James Brown. So he, he asked time and again why people couldn't take him as a regular singer, uh, without making a boogeyman out of him. But, you know, by this time, Alice Cooper had become a major rock star. Um, 
you know, that, that owed plenty to Hawkins Act. The Rocky Horror Picture Show spooked theaters, and then the subgenre peaked with Michael Jackson's Thriller in 82. So, um, like it or not, I mean, he, he definitely left a legacy, and, you know, you could, you could argue not only horror rock, but goth and, and you know, a lot of that emo movement. Um, you know, anything dark and mysterious really can be traced back to I have a spell on you. Yeah, I mean, because you would have had family-friendly fare around that time with, like, the Monster Mash. Oh, yeah. And some of those novelty tunes. But this, you know, it, it sounded a little dangerous. It is. It, it does. And it's, but it's so much fun. I mean, you listen to it, it is unlike anything else that's going to be on this mixtape. And I just, I had to include it, and it was the first song that I thought of, um, because it is so different. I mean, it's always, so many songs are, are male, you know, male singers, male artists that are, you know, talking about the dangerous woman that, that has cast a spell on them. It's very, very unusual that you have the, the, the gender reversal. And I just, I love the tune. So. All right, great. That's number one. I'll be uh, interested to hear that again. It's been a while since, uh, I, I, I think I listened to the Creedence version not too long ago. That's, that's what's in my head, but well, it's been a while since I've heard yeah. the original. Well, Creedence plays it straight. Right. Um, in fact, um, they, a lot, many artists proved, um, they really proved Hawkins correct that you know it could work effectively as just a straight ballad. Um, Credence started with it, and uh, probably the the most famous version that that kept it you know very very straight without you know the humor and the and the overt sexuality was probably by Nina Simone in mm, 1965. Right. Um, so yeah, a lot of artists have have had success with it, but you know only Jay Hawkins uh, original is really the you know the the very dark and mysterious version that everyone remembers so all right well we're gonna go about 40 years in the future here sounds good <laughs> this will be a stark contrast um guess what I, if you would have told me that on our first season of uh the uh gen x mixtape that uh, i would be choosing two songs by b.o.b <laughs> i'm gonna tell you you're crazy <laughs> really Okay. Well, B.O.B. was featured on the song that we chose with um, with Jesse J. on right. the Money episode for yeah. Price Tag. Price Tag. Well, now uh, I'm, I'm featuring a B.O.B. song featuring Rivers Cuomo, mm -hmm. the 2010 Magic. Yes. Yep. Um, as I've established before, I, I haven't kept up with, with modern, you know, modern pop music since like the mid-90s. But every so often a song crosses my radar and I don't know if this crossed my radar because my students were listening to it or if I just happened to hear it on the radio. I mean, my kids were listening to it or the, or the fact that I'm a huge Weezer fan. Yeah. And so that may have been the why I, I sought it out because Rivers Cuomo is featured on the track. But uh, man, this is one of my favorite pop songs of the last 20 years. It, it's it's fantastic. I, I, I'm a bit surprised. I, I did not know. Well, I didn't know that you would know the song, yes, frankly. Uh, I, yes. It's not on my list, so I'm, I'm pleasant, yeah, it, pleasantly surprised. And I put it first because it's, it's one of those just kind of like, I mean, there's really nothing on the song at all other than this infectious hook and a lot of danceable energy. Yes. Like, that, that's it. There, there, there's, not, there's nothing deeper than that. It's one of those tracks. It almost falls, almost falls in the guilty pleasure, although it's, it's, not a, it's not a bad song. It's just a pure pop powerhouse. Mm -hmm. oh, there's nothing wrong with that. And it, it was kind of co-written with, uh, with B.O.B. and Rivers Cuomo and, and Dr. Luke, who produced it. They all kind of worked, I think, separately. Uh, in fact, I don't think you know, B.O.B. even met Rivers Cuomo uh, until that, Rivers Cuomo came on stage to perform it one time yeah, at one of his shows. That's pretty standard right, by today's right. recording industry. I got the magic in me Every time I 
touch that track, it turns into gold. Everybody knows I got the magic in me. When I hit the floor, the girls come snapping at me. Now everybody wants a blast of magic, 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 magic. Blow your mind. Pick a verse, any verse. I hypnotize you with every line. I'll need a volunteer. How about you with the eyes? Come on down to the front. Stay right here and don't be shy. I have you time traveling. Have your mind babbling. People trying to inherit the skills, so they asking me. Even David Blaine had to go and take some classes in. I see mind freak like, what's up, man? What's happening? So come one, come all and see the show tonight. Prepare to be astounded. No ghost or poltergeist. You know I'm no Pinocchio. I never told a lie. It initially wasn't released as a single, although when the album was released, it, it got a huge amount of airplay. Eventually, it was the second single on the album, which was uh, B.O. Beat's um, debut album, The Adventures of Bobby Ray. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, it went to number 10 when it was finally released on the Billboard Hot 100. So, you know, it was kind of mixed critically. A lot of people panned the song because it is so simplistic. Um, some people like Pitchfork, of course, the snobbiest you know review site oh, of yeah. the internet. Had said, it's kind of a funny review, actually, the way they describe it. But I love it. I'm not ashamed to say I love a, a good pop song that gets me moving. And this is one. If it comes on in the car, if it comes on when I'm cleaning the house or something, I'm, I'm likely to dance, which is a scary sight. But <laughs> but I, I cannot not dance to the song. Yeah. No. It, it, it's well. It was made for that purpose. Um, no. It, it's it's a great song. Um, and and one that I. I very much enjoy I just I had to cut myself off this this is one of the few times that I've come in with the right number because okay. we've always set you know this this idea this ideal of just having five alternates and usually I come in with a list of 10 or 20 so I only have four alternates you only so have four this I'm time. banking on not a lot okay. of matches but well and there may not be um, a lot of mine like I said are the, are the songs that I think everyone expects so I you know you may be taking my alternates one by one here we'll coming see. up but um, no I, I just what a, yeah, just what a fun song. I'm, yeah, I'm just thinking I'm, about listening to it. It makes me excited. And, and you're right. What a, what a stark contrast. I mean, those, <laughs> right, our yeah. first two songs have very little. Actually, they have nothing whatsoever um, to do with one another. Um, but, but you know, that's that's magic. I mean, it's, you know, and as I said, we're going to, I hope, kind of stretch the, the definition here and, and come, come at it from a number of yeah, perspectives. So, All right, what you got next? All right, well, my next one is one that I think people would expect. Um it is by Santana, however. Oh, you just stole another one from my Halloween list. Did I really? Is it Black Magic Woman? It is Black then you Magic did. Woman. <laughs> That's number um, two. <laughs> Black Magic Woman, um, you know, a lot of people don't realize it was originally a Fleetwood Mac song. Um, Fleetwood Mac started as a blues group, you know, before Lindsay and, and Stevie joined the band. And Santana was actually one of their biggest fans. He used to go and watch, um, you know, early Fleetwood Mac, and he was always in awe of, of the blues that they would uh, perform. Um, after the song was released, uh, you know, Fleetwood Mac kind of changed, well, they changed gears entirely. I mean, they shifted and, you know, they became the pop, the very iconic pop band that they are now remembered for. Um, but Peter Green, who was the founding member of Fleetwood Mac, um, you know, after the song was released, he actually befriended some people who were into black magic. And in an interview with Cameron Crowe of Rolling Stone magazine, Christine McVie has said that 
these were the people who turned him on to acid, which then led to Green leaving the band. Um, so, you know, many also don't know, though, that Santana started out as a blues band, um, you know, just like Fleetwood Mac. Carlos Santana, um, you know, he, he has said many times that uh, going to Steve Fleetwood Mac live, I mean, it just killed him. Uh, they knocked him out. He, he's gone on record, actually, to say that he felt they were the greatest blues band of the time. So um, when, when his band, when Santana put their own spin on this song, of course, uh, they incorporated Latin textures, uh, but they kept the, the basic sound from the original intact. And really, I, I, I want to include, you know, for our, our playlist, uh, the album version, which has, you know, a, a one minute, 49 second instrumental at the end of Santana's cover, which is called Gypsy Queen. Um, the original release was Black Magic Woman slash Gypsy Queen. Um, and it was written by the Hungarian jazz guitarist Gabor Zabo. Um, it's been omitted from Santana's 1974 Greatest Hits album and, um, you know, all the subsequent collections, uh, even though radio stations usually play Black Magic Woman and Gypsy Queen as one song. The royalties, though, that were generated by Santana's cover, it really helped to sustain the song's writer. Uh, Peter Green, after he left Fleetwood Mac, um, you know, he, he gave most of his money away when he left the band, and he would have found himself destitute later in the 70s if he didn't get checks, um, you know, royalty checks from his old old recordings. So Santana keyboard player Greg Rowley, he, he sang lead on this version, and he left Santana to joined Journey in 1973. But yeah, for this song solo, Carlos Santana, he played across the Latin rhythm on his Gibson Les Paul special through the amp, and, and he rode the volume knob throughout the track to add sustain and distortion as required. It's just, it is just a jam, and it, it's one of one of my favorite songs to, to play in the background because it's just so freeing. I mean, it just, it's a liberating tune, and it, it's just so classy, and the, you know, the Latin rhythms, it, it was just a guarantee that I had to include it. Mm. 
And Peter Green, unfortunately, just passed just passed away uh, not long ago as right. well. So correct. Yeah, no. This this is one. It, it's another one of those. I think it's in the canon of classic rock, right? Oh, without it's in question. one of those, if not you know, if not top one hundred, top five hundred classic rock songs of all time. So yeah, great and, stuff. Yeah, and and you know, Santana. I I love Santana. I mean, the the yeah, he's another one of those guitarists that I would hail as a god. You know, on the instrument. So yeah, it's. It's a wonder. I we should put Fleetwood Mac's original on the alternate. Songs, oh, we though. will we definitely. Will. We'll put that original. So. We'll put the originals. We'll put a couple of the covers. I mean, of, of well, yeah, of put a spell on you as well. well and but, there, uh, there are plenty. Yeah. Cool. Okay. Great one. Well, let's see if I can steal a third. All your, right. Your, your we'll turn. <laughs> well, now we're going to uh, put on our sailor's hat and uh, get on the yacht because this is a a yacht rock staple. Okay. Uh, it's from the band Pilot. It's on my alternate. Do we have list. Oh, alternates list. Alter- okay. Yeah, this is one of my alternates. Yep. I have a lot of songs that are simply just called. Magic, and this is one of them. (laughs) Um, Came out in 1974. um, From I love the name of this album. It's it's from the album of the same name. Yeah, is the actual name of the album. It is probably the one of the most clever titles of any album ever released. Uh, That doesn't mean that the title of the album is magic, folks. That means the title is literally. You from know, the album from of the, the same album name. From the album of the Great. same yes, name. It's, yes. it's fantastic. And uh, this one was produced by Alan Parsons. It seemed like everything in the 70s was produced by Alan Parsons. Uh, it was the band's only American hit, but it did reach number five on the Hot 100 in the su- summer of 1975. The song, however, was not inspired by a woman. No, no, it wasn't. Do you know what it was inspired by? Yeah, it was just simply, uh, it was it was a reverie, really, of, of waking up to a sunshiny, very beautiful morning. Yep. I mean, that, and, that's that's the song. And specifically, there was a sunshine at Blackford Hill at, uh, at Edinburgh, where uh, the, the songwriter, his name escapes me right now, who... Um, um, songwriter was... Um, Oh, David Patton. Yep. David Patton. And, and and so that particular sunset, I think, is what started the whole uh, uh, writing process and put it in motion. Um, this song, of course, has appeared in numerous movies, TV shows, television commercial, television commercials. It's one of those songs where I think everybody's heard. Most people probably could not identify the band. Um, most people probably could not identify necessarily the year where it came out, but I think everybody knows this song. Oh, they do. Actually, 
for our younger listeners, um, I would never have included this version myself, but Selena Gomez actually recorded a version of it for, for the Wizards, Wizards of Waverly Place. Place. Yeah, yeah, that's um, correct. So, and that w- that's a fairly contemporary, a more recent version. But yeah, no, Pilot, and as I said, that was one of the songs that I had. It well, we written, have to put it on. Yeah, exactly. But I, I we'd be a committing lot of, podcast malpractice we would, if yeah. we didn't put that song on. Uh, agreed. But no, yeah, a lot of those uh, were relegated to my to my alternates list so I can check one off that's all good. right what you got next all right well uh, I'm still dealing with black magic but I don't think that this is one that you were planning on for Halloween well let's see so um, this one uh, that old black magic no nope, don't which have is, it it is actually uh, a big band staple uh, it was uh, the original um, you know it was written in 1942 um, and uh, it was composed by let me see if I can find it here in my notes. Um, well, it was composed by it was written by Harold Arlen, uh, and the lyrics were by Johnny Mercer. Um, and it's been covered by more than eighty artists, but all of them stay very true to the big band uh, orchestration. The version I'm using is actually by Bob Dylan. Um, it was released in 2016. It was Bob Dylan's 37th. It's it's hard to believe that that's even. You know, possible. Oh, is this the, sta- Bob, the standards album that yes. he did? Yeah, well, he did three of them. Yeah, he did a trilogy. Because I, I haven't listened to him, but from what I understand, he all of a sudden remembered how to sing. Yeah, and, and, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, oh, I absolutely. love no one loves Dylan more than me. Yeah, but we know that his vocal style has changed, and some would say has degraded over the years. And I think a lot of people just assumed that that was kind of the best he could do. But no, that's it's my yeah. choice. No, absolutely, it's my choice. Yeah. Uh, no, this was it's Bob Dylan's thirty seventh. I, I just love saying that studio album. Um, and it's titled Fallen Angels, the okay, album. Right, right. Uh, it was actually his second of three consecutive tribute albums to Frank Sinatra in as many years. Um, so apparently, you know, songs collectively known as the Great American Songbook are like those famous potato chips. Uh, you know, singers who start sampling them quickly discover you can't stop at just one, <laughs> I suppose. But, you know, to the pigeonhole-minded uh, who shorthand the three albums as coverage records, uh, Dylan smartly has responded that, uh, and this is a quote by him, I don't see myself as covering these songs in any way. Uh, they've been covered enough. Buried, as a matter of fact, what me and my band are basically doing is uncovering them, lifting them out of the grave and bringing them into the light of day. So, you know, that's classic Dylan. Mm-hmm. Um, the first album of the trilogy was Shadows in the Night, and it caught a lot of fans off guard as one of rock's most original and cynical voices uh, applied his nasal croon <laughs> to decades-old songs seeping in sentiment. Um, Frank Sinatra, of course, uh, that glistening tenor and silken delivery, they're as far removed from Dylan's folk rock rasp as one could imagine. Um, but Dylan, you know, Dylan isn't exactly known for having nimble pipes, you're right, and, and a recurring knock against the trilogy was that a voice with such a high gravel quotient really should stay far away from the the sleek, graceful, demanding lines within songs, you know, written by Richard Rodgers, George Gershwin, and, and Cole Porter. But, um, you know, possessing a pleasing vocal tone, it really is just one element of the singing business. Um, the, the larger challenges involve personalizing a melody and shaping each phrase so it rings true. You know, we've talked about this before. One of my favorite artists, Sam Cooke, um, he was he was told you know throughout his career that he had this beautiful voice and once in a 1961 interview he famously responded well that's very kind of you but voices ought not to be measured by how pretty they are instead they matter only if they convince you that they are telling the truth that that's 
you know, direct quote from Sam Cooke. And this is where Sinatra towers above mortals. I mean, his size, his small gestures, his nuanced, rich asides, they tell or, or more accurately hint at, at stories inside of stories. Uh, but Dylan, you know, he's a storyteller from way back. He understands all of this. And in spite of the limitations of his vocal instrument, he, he has created on these albums uh, a whispery, willfully idiosyncratic phrasing style. Um, you know, it's a way of ambling through tunes that feels disarmingly believable. And when comparing Dylan to, to Old Blue Eyes, you know, the chairman of the board, if you will, this, the, the, the connective thread is really their shared dive into deep emotion. Um, here, Dylan is engaging in emotional, more than musical archaeology. He's, he's uncovering the works of composers and lyricists whose style of writing was virtually shoved aside when he came along. He, he's the one that put them out of business, of course. Um, you know, a half century ago with his highly literate, folk-rooted songwriting style, one that was rightly or wrongly widely interpreted to, to be largely autobiographical. That old black magic has weaved its spell That old black magic that you weave so well Those icy fingers up and down my spine Same old witchcraft when your eyes meet mine Same old tingle that I feel inside And then that elevator starts its ride And down and down I go Round and round I go Like a leaf Caught in the tide I should stay away But what can I do I hear your name And I'm a flame A flame With burning desire That only your kiss Can put out the fire These albums, they're, they're just phenomenal um, Some of my favorite Favorites by, by Dylan Um you know, yeah, the, the arrangements, um, they've, they've always been key to jazz standards, whether given lush orchestral padding or stripped down to their most late night desperate. So Dylan's take on Fallen Angels, it, it falls somewhere in between. And it, you know, coaxing sensitive performances from the band while staying true to the timeless melodies that have kept these songs in the public consciousness for eight decades. Um, yeah, sticking with the traditional instrumentation and deliberate vocal phrasing that have driven his albums for the past 20 years, Dylan, he really covers these ballads like an old pro. And without question, the best track from Fallen Angels is that old black magic. I mean, it's uh, Dylan's vocal enthusiasm is just immediately evident on the track. He channels, really, he channels Jimmy Durante's animated playfulness more than Sinatra's olive oil delivery. But, but the song sounds fresh. I mean, in large part, uh, from the way he and his android roots-minded band arrange it. Uh, he liberates the song from its big band orchestration, and he actually reimagines it as a rockabilly shuffle. It's just really, it's just really cool, you know, to, to hear it. And he does, he, you know, he sings the song. Um, now, it's not stellar vocal delivery, but, you know, you would listen to this and you would be hard-pressed. I think most people would never guess that it's Bob Dylan they're hearing Well, that's the singing. thing. I think people felt like that he, physically his, his vocal cords were to the point where he just could not oh, yeah. hold a tune. When he, especially but this at, kind of proved yeah, everybody wrong. Especially at this point. He was 75 years old right. when he recorded the album. But, yeah, even with this unconventional arrangement, you know, Dylan, he just catches the grace of a bygone era without descending into self-parody. It's the foundational rhythm is what jazz drummers call the businessman's bounce. 
And atop that is the steadying presence of rhythm guitar strumming in a western swing mode. And atop that sits wonderfully wistful uh, sloping leads from, from pedal steel master Donnie Heron, whose lines frame and animate Dylan's very closely mic'd vocals without getting in the way. The, the bare bones instrumentation, I mean, it still effectively recalls hot club jazziness in this upbeat love letter. And it's just, it's phenomenal. I, I just, I had, this is the first time, hard to believe, very first time I've actually included Dylan on one of my lists. But this is a song, folks, that you're going to love when you hear. I mean, it's just, it's yeah. unlike anything. I kind of skipped those um, just because they are, you know, standards and I'm not a big standards. Right. Cover, but like you say, I can understand what, what he's saying. He's completely reinterpreted right. those songs, and um, those are the only kind of covers that are even worth anything. Or if you kind of take your own spin yeah. on it and and rebuild them from the ground up. So, oh, um, I am curious to check them out. Yeah, it's fantastic, and you know, it's there's a stigma attached to it now because how many rockers have you know gone the way of like Rod the, Stewart, yeah, Rod Stewart, Barry did, Manilow, exactly, and um, even as much as I hate it, you know, our, our idol Billy Joel has fallen victim to it from time to time but yeah Dylan he approaches them and the arrangements are wildly different than you know the traditional and it's it's still you know just jazzy as hell so I'm I'm hoping that you know our our listeners will really really enjoy the the song very cool all right my next one believe it or not it's called magic is it yes all right well there were three uh magic Cool. Uh, titles to hit the top 40 in a 10-year span. Are we going chronologically? Are, Do you are, know? Are you talking about the three like in the early 80s? Yeah, the late 70s, 70s and 80s. Early 80s? Yeah, because yeah. we went pilot. They were first, right. followed by Olivia Newton-John, okay. followed by The Cars. So well, I'm going gonna, gonna to be talking about The Cars. We're talking about The Cars. At that this is, point. That is on my alternates list. All right. Okay. Came out from uh, Heartbeat City, which was kind of... It was the Mutt Lang produced uh, album from the Cars. You know, the Cars had yes. gotten a lot of airplay and uh, had a few MTV offerings prior to this album. But this was really their huge. We've, we've talked about this before. In the early '80s, you had these just mega albums um, that had anywhere between four, five, six, sometimes seven or eight. If you're talking about Michael Jackson and Bruce Springsteen, singles often a, a, a particular album. Yep. And uh, this was one of those. It's right up there. Um, that kind of defined the sound of the '80s. Heartbeat City from '84. And yeah, Magic by the Car. This was probably my favorite song of that summer. I remember this. I, I had, before I bought, I eventually bought Heartbeat City, but before that, I had the single for Magic. Mm-hmm. And I just, I think I wore it out. I love this song. It's just, it's everything about summer. And if you remember the video, it was one of the most iconic 80s videos. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, and, and, and the cars are kind of known for being one of those bands that established MTV. Um, when you kind of got away from the concert um, performance type videos or the kind of low budget offerings, which we're going to talk about one in a little bit that was groundbreaking, but kind of low budget. Um, <laughs> in this case, man, they, they, they sunk some money into it, kind of like Billy Joel and, yeah. and, and Michael Jackson and Bruce Springsteen did. Uh, and that was the one where um, they were actually at the, at the, I think at the Beverly Hills. It was actually Hilton. the Hilton Estate. Yeah. Yeah, or the but, Hilton Estate. Yeah. Paris wasn't there, folks. She, right, she, right. But she would have been three years old at the time. So, But uh, the concept was to have Rick Ocasek uh, walk across water, mm-hmm. and they achieved a very practical effect by simply building a platform out of plexiglass which collapsed the first time yep. he walked through so they <laughs> did. didn't quite walk on water from the beginning but uh, they fixed that up and they did it's kind of a cool effect it is yeah and it's just a basically a party by this pool kind of a bunch of weird like you know kind of Andy Warhol type factory people hanging around and 
they all try to walk on water too, and they fall into the water, and that's pretty much the concept. But it was it was really iconic at the time. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so it was written by Gruko Kasich. The song went to number twelve uh, in the summer of '84, and I've learned something new about this song. Apparently, the lyric isn't "milk duds in your eyes." No, it's uh, it's love darts love in your eyes. But love my darts. entire life, I thought he was singing milk, milk duds. duds. Really? Because she had brown eyes, and uh, I figured yeah. it was just him kind of being. Okay. You know, a little I, bit quirky I, in the I lyrics. Can see that. So it's not milk duds. I, I've misinterpreted lyrics countless times. I've never never thought he was singing milk duds, you know, in this yeah, well, one. Well, that was, that was <laughs> but, me. Um, no, it, it is just, you know, if you're looking for a song that's just brilliantly mid 80s, I mean, look no further. And like you, I had the single to. Um, I actually bought three singles from this album before I finally said screw it and bought the album. Because um, I had You Might Think, and then I bought uh, Drive. And I also had magic, and it got to the point where I'm, I'm looking at these three, you know, 45s in my collection, thinking, you know, when the next one comes, I really don't want to spend money on yet another single. And yeah, I went out and bought Heartbeat City. It's just this one actually was on my ten. It was on my. It actually was the first song I had listed. And it was on my ten until last night. Okay. I, I moved it to the alternates last night to make room for for something else. But again, two in a row that. Uh, I wanted, and yeah, you're just going right through my. my yeah, I had to, list. and of course, Rico Kasich. And by the way, we were, we all, everybody, everybody in the world pronounced it Rico Kasich, and he never, he never um, corrected anybody yeah. until he until he passed. And then basically, this family was like, no, it's actually pronounced a Kasich. So I'm going to pronounce it the way that actually it's being pronounced. But you know, I I never knew that. I thought yeah. you were mispronouncing. It's it. kind of like <laughs> Neil, everyone can pronounce Neil Pert, but it's Neil Pert. Okay? okay, so everybody, so it's just like these people pass away, and then we find out. Hmm. Um, well, actually, I, I think most people, I don't know, I think Neil Pert was kind of a dialectual thing, because we grew up calling him Neil Pert. Right. And then, yeah. you know, when he passed away and people were pronouncing Pert, I'm like, and then I kind of looked into it and like, yeah, no, we were just been saying it wrong. So I've been saying that one wrong for yeah, years, too. Yeah, it's Rico, Rico Kasich. Yeah, so. no, I, I actually, I thought you were mispronouncing Okasik, and nope. I was just going to let you go. No, no, <laughs> so, no, that's, that's um, the, so I, there's that's my, the proper, and I just want to say Rico Kasich uh, from, I only spent a semester, but went to our alma mater, Bowling BG, Green State University. Yeah, Bowling Green. So a little, little shout out. Yeah, there. no, I, um, I never knew that it was yep. Okasik. Okay. Yep. Learned something new.
Love that song. All right, what you got next? All right, well, fans of J.R. Token uh, will no doubt understand why this song makes my list for a magic mixtape. Um, I'm talking about Rivendell, mm-hmm. and you know, it, it the title it refers to an elven village in Middle Earth, and um, I guess I'm going to explain a bit to the non-readers. Um, you know, it's located in a peaceful, sheltered valley of Imladris, um and, and Rivendell. It sat at the edge of a narrow gorge on the River Bruinen, um, but it remained well hidden in the moorlands and foothills of the Misty Mountains. Your geek is showing. I, it is, yeah. <laughs> Rivendell. I'll, I'll cut it short. Rivendell <laughs> was home to the House of Elrond, half Elven, um, and it was often referred to as the last homely house east of the sea. Evil things. Do not enter that valley. Time does not seem to pass there, and all fears and anxieties are lifted from the minds of weary travelers who visit. So, yeah, Rush, um, they recorded a song. The title is Rivendell, and it's featured on the 1975 album Fly By Night. Um, and it's just, it's a beautiful song. It's very soft, very melodic. It's it's acoustic. It's it's not, you know, at this point, they, they were fully in prog mode a lot of the time, and this is not one of those songs. Um, the lyrics were by Neil Peart. I'll say it correctly. There you now. go. Um, yeah, the lyrics by, were by Neil Peart. He, uh, this was the first album that he appeared on uh, as their drummer, and he immediately kind of took the reins as their, their lyricist uh, when he came. Uh, he was a huge Token fan. Um, and, you know, Peart, he, he relays the magic and wonder of the valley. The, the lyrics go, you feel there's something calling you, you're wanting to return, to where the misty mountains rise and friendly fires burn, a place you can escape the world where the Dark Lord cannot go. Peace of mind and sanctuary by Loudwater's flow. I mean, it's that is Rivendell. I mean, to anyone who has read the the works of J.R.R. Tolkien, musically though, I mean, ethereal timbers. I mean, they, they depict the Elven sanctuary through gentle mid-range vocals and classical guitar played by Geddy Lee, and soft and slow electric guitar. There's no bass. There's no percussion on the track. Um, and in the electric guitar part, the volume fades in and out on each note, making their attacks and releases inaudible. And, you know, this dissociates the sounds from the physical act of playing, which really kind of enhances their unearthliness. And Lee's keening vocals, they suggest the beauty this imaginary refuge had for, for he and Peart. And, you know, Token's influence, it, it could also be heard on By Tour and The Snow Dog, which is also on the album, and several later songs by the band. And, of course, the ever-popular Token-inspired you know, other 70s rockers, including Led Zeppelin. But, you know, Lee, I found this enjoyable. <laughs> Lee tells us a, a really funny story about the recording of the song Rivendell. Um, the band had been working on Fly By Night for several days straight and with little sleep, and they were due to leave the next day. So producer Terry Brown kept playing Rivendell, the last song to be mixed, to get their take on how it sounded. But the band members could never stay awake long enough to give their opinion. Um, they, would, they would begin the song, and listening back, you know, all kind of lying on the floor in front of the mixing console, and they'd get to the end of the song, and every single time at least one of the band was sound asleep. Um, you know, this itself, I, I to me, and yeah, I'm again my fanboy, my, my nerd alert is going off. But to me, this itself is reminiscent uh, of Rivendell because there was uh, in the House of Elrond the Hall of Fire, mm-hmm. right? And you know, here uh, what Gandalf tells Frodo in Lord of the Rings and Fellowship: here you will hear many songs and tales if you can keep awake. Um, 
But except on high days, he continues, it usually stands empty and quiet, and people come here who wish for peace and thought. There's always a fire here all the year around, but there's little other light. And yeah, the Hall of Fire in, in the House of Elrond, folks, if you've read The Hobbit, if you've read Lord of the Rings, people go there and everyone sings and elven music just puts everyone fast asleep. So I found the story really amusing because it's so fitting, you know, for a token tribute on I need one of those in my house, so I can... 3.30 in the morning when I can't sleep, I need a hall of fire. Sunlight dances through the leaves Soft winds stir the sighing trees Lying in the warm grass Feel the sun This was actually the one that replaced the cars. Okay. I, I hadn't thought of it. And then last night, um, it, it all of a sudden it just hit me. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, huge token fan. How am I not including, you know, Rivendell? Um, and, and I just, I thought, let's go for it. Good and, choice. And it's, you know, it's another one that just by sound, musically, yeah. it's it's going to be very different from what else is on the mixtape. So Yeah, there were quite a few bands in the in the 70s that paid ode to, to Tolkien with yes, their, their lyrics. Yeah. Zeppelin had a few. Quite a few. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Yeah, good choice. All right. Well, this is the one I mentioned um, when I say, and I don't know that it was a low-budget video. When we look at it today, it looks low-budget because of all the video effects that they tried to cram into a, a three-minute song. This, Your, I'm th- going, yeah, this is a match, and it's actually on my 10. So. What is it? It's, it's actually... What, I, what song? Abracadabra. Yeah, okay, good. I want to make sure. Abracadabra. Abracadabra. That's the only song I have that does not have the word magic in the title by Steve Miller Band. And um, I believe it's not even on Greatest Hits, the Steve Miller Greatest Hits, because it came out after. Well, it's not on the one that. The one we had in college. In college. It's not, but but it's since, I'm sure. Yeah, he does have a a longer Greatest Hits collection that, you know, it's a part of. This was his last hit, uh, at least in the United States. It came out in 1982. And at the time, Capitol Records didn't even, like, they had wanted nothing to do with it. They thought it wasn't a hit. Uh, he had a different label contract over in Europe and other parts of the world, so he went ahead and, and released it, and it became a huge hit around the world. Uh, I believe it went to number one in, in the UK. And so Capitol finally said, all right, we need to get on board and um, released it as a single in America, where it promptly went to number one as well. Yes. So Steve Miller was right. You know, it's, it's interesting. Steve Miller was really not cut out for the video generation. He was kind of, no. I don't know, shy or just, he just he didn't wear that rock star persona. He didn't go out in public and uh, want to be seen. When he was like that long before. MTV. Right, no, that's what I was saying. He, he was, was very private. Very private, but, but not the kind of personality. In fact, to the point where he was on tour when this video was made, and so they just used stills of him. Do you remember the video? I do, yeah. Okay. And it had the, the delay effect and the, you know, the... All sorts of those early was, video yeah. effects. If you play around in Adobe Premiere, you can find yeah. them. He, yeah, he's in the background. If I remember the video correctly, he's in the background wearing sunglasses playing while an actual magician is performing tricks. Well, I went back and I watched it. And I watched it again. And I watched it again. And I watched it about 10 times in a row. <laughs> okay. I couldn't stop watching it. 
And I remember watching the video with my dad back in 1982 on MTV. We'd go to my grandmother's house. She had cable. I talked about that. And so I turned on MTV and I remember my dad. My dad didn't like snakes or rats, which I guess nobody. I mean, that's a normal thing. Yeah. I, but I remember halfway through the video when the, the, the rats crawling on the, the model's shoulder, he said, why do they have to ruin the video with a rat? I just remember him <laughs> saying that. But it, it was. I remember at the time. You just you, you couldn't look away because there was so much just stuff going on. Yes. And I didn't kind of realize this until I looked into it this week, but really this video kind of set the vocabulary for music videos to come. It did. Like at the time before this, um, you, you didn't really see a lot of these elements or any of these uh, elements in, in videos prior to this. So in some ways, this really set the stage for what music video would become for the, at least the next 10 years uh, or more. And so, like the visual tropes, for instance, like um, stylized repetition, showing things over in different ways and different angles and, and back and forth throughout the video. Uh, the early special effects, like, uh, again, if you played in Adobe Premiere, you know you have like the, the negative effect and then you can, I don't know, I don't know the actual names itself, but if you play around, you can get some pretty chintzy 80s looking video effects. Oh, yeah. yeah. And, and, and I'm sure at the time, they probably were, people were watching, they go, wow, that's incredible. And now we look back and we're like, yeah, it looks like really bad, you know, local cable station. But, uh, and the objectifying body pan first makes its mm-hmm. uh, appearance here where, you know, you have a model lying there and then it starts from the toes and goes up the legs and across. And, and of course, we see that in a million videos prior to that. But this is where it began, actually, in this video. It's it's number eight on my list, so this one is actually a, a true a match. match. Okay, um, but I, you know, in preparing for the show to the, the podcast today, I, I did not go back and revisit the video. So now, now my curiosity, my yeah, you piqued my my curiosity. No, yeah, you, yeah, back. like I'm telling you, you're you're. you're <laughs> Listeners, you're not going to be able to watch it. You mentioned the potato chips not being able to have just one. Right. You're going to watch it over again. Um, it, partly because, frankly, the model's a little bit easy on the eyes. That's That doesn't... That's standard MTV. It doesn't hurt. Um, <laughs> so. But again, like like she is credited, and, and I don't know the name of the, of the model or the actress, but she's credited as being the first video vixen oh, okay. of MTV. So apparently it's not just me. Now, at the time, I would have been 10, so I probably was more interested in the magic tricks than I was in the actual uh, ma- magician's assistant that appears in the video, but uh, but now the older me kind of gets it. So, hmm. Yeah, Abracadabra by Steve Miller. Um, I remember this is one of the first 45s I ever bought. Never owned the 45. Um, I, I in fact, I never owned the song until much later. Um, and when I talk about my collection, I mean, I, I've, I've said I'm a DJ, so I don't know if our listeners nef- necessarily differentiate. When I say it's not in my collection, that means I don't own it. You know, a physical copy. Uh, you know, in 
in my home, but certainly DJing, you know, I acquired the song and I always enjoyed it, but, and, and certainly it has a place here. I, I put it on my list for, for good reason, but you know, it's, it's, it's written by Steve Miller, you know, a catchy pop song, mild sexual innuendo contained in the, in the lyrics, but it really is a simplistic June moon spoon variety. You know, I see magic well, in your uh, eyes. You can only rhyme abracadabra with reach out and grab her. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Steve Miller has um, always been very, very loose on the rhyme. Yeah, in front. He, he always has. And, you know, the man who once spoke of the pompous of love, you know, he's now rhyming abracadabra uh, in that way. It's certainly not the song that got Miller into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Um, and But abracadabra, it was such a huge hit. You know, it spent two weeks at number one. And, you know, I will give um, Steve Miller this. He was new wave i mean he sat he had the sound of new wave before new wave was a thing right you know i mean rock, yeah this sounds this song sounds very different from his earlier stuff yeah it really it, does it really does but you know he he had always he had added synthesizers um you know to to his music you know dating back to the 60s and you know when he evolved into a rock outfit uh you know that then into the 70s i think of like fly like an eagle you know mm, yeah. with, with the synths and you know he sprinkled electronic effects always in, into a song so the keyboards and synth stabs and abracadabra they really weren't out of character but you know it, it really was his last ditch effect because he he was a dinosaur yeah. in you know uh, the yeah, MTV he, generation he just wasn't made for the MTV generation yeah he um, you, Do you know, know who inspired the song that I don't he worked with this particular artist, Motown artist, in the late 60s. He was on a television show with her. Later on, he encountered her on a skiing trip. Diana Ross. Diana Ross. I do remember reading so that So after he encountered her on a skiing trip later, and I think he had lunch with her, he went uh, he went home and wrote this song with her in mind. Yeah, I do remember that. Yeah, I, you know, it's such a shame, really. But, you know, by the early 80s, you know, Steve Miller was considered a... It was. It was a dinosaur group. Punk was in, New Wave, the hair bands. So, you know, the guys in the green tights and two-foot hairdos, they, it really seemed at the time that Steve Miller's run was over. But, you know, the group, it was only a, just a couple of years removed um, from drawing, you know, that, that classic rock uh, fan base. Because by 1988, he was, you know, his tours were selling out again um, because, you know, it's that 20-year retro sure. that, that way we talked about so many times and and over the next few decades you know he kept a consistent but reasonable touring schedule but when well, you yeah. can pull off the mtv thing if you have that charisma like like billy joel and phil collins and bruce springsteen aren't your typical right uh you know rock star persona for television but they were able to use their own charisma yeah kind of like we talked about bob dylan used his voice um, these, especially like Phil Collins, I mean, of, oh, of all of them, I absolutely. mean, he's not what you'd consider a sex symbol, but was able to use the medium with his own personality yeah. and made it work. And I think Steve Miller was just so 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 much of an introvert. Yeah, he wasn't able to develop that. No, agreed. And and Abracadabra, you know, it didn't, it still didn't draw on the fans. You know, they they would draw a few thousand fans to their big arena shows, and it really it did it marked the end of their run as a huge concert draw until classic rock stations right, rediscovered right. Steve yep. Miller so yep. um, yeah no it's, it's first true genuine match so um, there we go oh, right. great addition what's your next one alright my next one and, and this is going to be one of the last uh, that does not really have magic at, at, in its title um, but I just love this version and I hope I didn't steal another one from you um, but I'm going with Season of the Witch and it's by Lana Del Rey Okay, I do not have that okay. one. Um, you know, it's, Season of the Witch, it, the original, it was one of the first songs of the psychedelic genre uh, by Donovan. Uh, he wrote it, wrote and recorded Season of the Witch in May 1966. 
Um, the genesis of the song, you know, it goes back to an evening at folk music music notable Bert uh, Jansch's house in North London uh, when fellow acoustic master John Renborn showed Donovan a, a D ninth chord. And from that, Donovan built up a riff that, according to the memories of those present, he, he played solidly for the next seven hours. Uh, the song is ideal for long jams. Uh, the two main chords, A and D, are played during the verses, and during the chorus, there are three chords, A, D, and E. And, and Season of the Witch continues to be a perennial influence because it allows a jam. It's not a 12-bar or a Latin groove, but a very modern jam. Led Zeppelin used it in warm-up every day that the band was on the road during their sound check. And many artists have covered the song. You know, it, it just allows for constant reinterpretation. Um, artists are free to explore, to be experimental, or just to break the rules when recording Season of the Witch. And, and the very best of the covers, and it's, it's very new, um, actually, is, is the current interpretation by Lana Del Rey. Um, as one would expect, Del Rey's version of the 60s tune is slightly more creepy. It's, you know, she has a more breathy, almost sensual vocal. Uh, she doubles down on the supernatural themes of the song by layering her haunting vocals and some some constructive instrumentation which holds her voice high. And and without the prominent guitar, the song becomes more of an atmospheric toward a haunted house, really, with Del Rey's siren voice and uh, the soft, deliberate instrumentation, um, including what I what I suspect uh, may be a theremin. Uh, it gives the song a, a charming, cartoonish, supernatural vibe. Um, Obviously, Del Rey lavishes the opportunity to embrace the occult and assume her true identity as a witch, unlike Donovan, who, you know, revels in fear of the ominous supernatural in the original version. But, but Del Rey, she drops one of Donovan's verses in favor of a longer, more repetitive bridge, chanting, uh, said it must be the season, must be the season, must be the season of the witch, and making the listener really bear witness to a, to a coven celebration, if you will. Um, while I do miss the heavy guitar build up of the original, I love Del Rey's take on it. When I look out my window, many sights to see. And when I look in my window, so many different people to be They're strange, so strange It's very strange to me You got to pick up every stitch You got to pick up every stitch You got to pick up every stitch While I do miss the heavy guitar buildup of the original, I love Del Rey's take on it, uh, instead opting for a more ethereal exit out of the song, which really leaves the listener haunted with her alluring voice and Jack Antonoff's instrumentals, you know, hushing us out. Her cover is not as dark and as unnerving as when she covered Once Upon a Dream, um, but she once again manages to breathe life into a classic. This was actually on the soundtrack for Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark, Guillermo del Toro's film that came out, Was it, I think it was last year. Yeah, right. Um, but uh, yeah, from the, from the humming and the, the intro to the little background voices and layered vocals in the, the last bridge, she just completely makes the track her own. And 
the guitar based production it's not necessarily modernizing the original that much but it simply shows off a new outlook on on how to play with the melody progression and the tune and i'm a sucker for lana del rey i just i love her voice no, i, I do love too. her style and you and stole one from the halloween episode by the way it's number three you told me that I... No, if you said, did, I, did we have a match on the list? I don't have this on my list. Oh, no, I meant... Oh. Oh, I meant, no, did no, I steal... No. Okay. Although I had Donovan's version, but... Well, you can play Donovan, yeah. No, it's fine. I got plenty of other okay. ones. Okay, yeah. I just, I had to include Lana Del I, I just, I love Lana Del Rey. Wasn't that so. also the title of Halloween 3, Season of the Witch? That was the subtitle oh. <laughs> of Halloween 3? <laughs> yes, it was. I'm sorry. I, you said that, and I immediately thought, Halloween 3, Lana Del Rey. I, I just, you know... Um, yeah, Season of the Witch was the the title <laughs> of Halloween 3, which was the only one that did not feature Michael Myers. Correct. I don't actually. know if they were going to try and just include well, I, different episodic yeah, type I think, sequels. Well, I think what they were trying to do is just to build an anthology of films. Each movie would eventually be its own story, but right. Michael Myers proved too popular. So, um, I'm sorry. I know I'm rambling on today. I, I'm just, I was so excited about the songs that I brought yeah, in. Yeah, no, that's and, good. Um, so, I'll, I'll try and limit uh, my, my ramblings here but yeah Del Rey definitely check it out and you know on the playlist I think it's going to be a wonderful addition so no, I, li- I like I mean she I I think someday we'll look back and see that she's had an influence on popular music maybe more than anybody in the last 10 15 years I mean Taylor Swift is starting to copper sound now from what I understand yeah, so yeah, she it, it, it seems to um, I'm trying to be fair to Taylor Swift I, I don't mean that in a derogatory sense, Taylor Swift, I just mean that Lana Del Rey is shaping the whole scope of popular music now mm-hmm. that other artists are starting to kind of go along that route as well. Yeah, and she's, she's just so unlike, you know, anything that's come before. I'm, Billie Eilish, I, I think, um, is, is the next big thing in that respect. But yeah, Lana Del Rey, definitely the last 10 years. I mean, she's been... Well, and Billie Eilish probably wouldn't... What? Singing yeah. what she's singing, if it wasn't if it for Lana Del Rey, as well. That's so. true as well, yeah. Um, but no, it's yeah. I, I just I, I had her debut her album back like 15 years ago. Yeah. I really enjoyed it back then. Yeah, well, like most people, I, I really first came to hear her with "Summer Sadness." I mean, that was my introduction, and then I went back and I've since you know procured her entire uh, discography. I just can't get enough of her. So, what was the name of that first album? I can't remember now. Oh, I have to go back and look it up. Yeah, I've been listening to it a long time. I forgot. All right, cool. Uh, next one, uh, another obvious one. This is from the Electric Light Orchestra. Match, or maybe just Electric Light Orchestra. Maybe there's no the in there. Maybe it's one of those. Yeah, it is just yellow. Electric, yeah. electric Light, Light Orchestra, Orchestra. Yeah. from 1975's Face the Music, Strange Magic. Yep, yep, yep. Um, that is on my ten, so that's my second direct match and it's one I, I love yellow it, it, it it's unfortunately for a long time they became kind of a, a, a punch line of uh, I don't know be, because they incorporated a lot of disco in their music especially you yeah. know in, in the later 70s it just wasn't really cool to be an ELO fan I always I, liked their pop sensibility I did too and now I mean now I think they're respected and people understand mm-hmm. I mean clearly obviously Jeff Lynne was um, influenced by the Beatles tremendously oh, yeah. he's a genius um, himself but and just the whole get up the, the orchestra the, the different types of instruments uh, electrified instruments that yeah play behind them but uh, yeah I would I would argue anybody uh, that they're, they're legit and they got some oh. great stuff
song went to number 14 on the U.S. Hot 100, and uh, this is kind of, all right, I'm going to get into it later anyway. You already kind of alluded to it, but uh, I am a huge Xanadu fan. I am too, and it's my next song. And so You may have a match coming where you can draw from yours as well. I wore out the Xanadu soundtrack, having never even seen the Xanadu movie. <laughs> you never saw it? No, no, I think oh, well, since. It, I okay. own it right over there on the okay. shelf. Yeah. No, um, I, I was a big Grease fan when I was oh, on television. I bought oh, yeah. the soundtrack. Yeah. But remember, at the time, you couldn't just go. I mean, if it was an older film, you couldn't go to the video store yeah. and rent it if it wasn't on television. So I think I ended up buying the Xanadu soundtrack just because um, it was an Olivia Newton-John film um, that I couldn't see. And that's where I was introduced to Xanadu. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and side one is, is all, um, it's one or two. One of the sides is all ELO. Yeah. And the other side is ELO and then Olivia, Olivia Newton-John and, and you got the tubes, the and, tubes yeah. and, uh, and a few other tracks there as well. And I just wore that out to the point where, I'm sure you were talking about magic here later on, but magic actually began to skip in the same place. And I still, every time <laughs> I listen to the song, I know where it's going to skip. Yeah. And I have to walk over to the, you know, to the end of the room and move the needle. But, um, they're actually, and we can talk about Xanadu in a little bit too, but you know, it's a really, really campy film. It's one of those, it's like, how in the heck did this get made? But it's got a cult following. Yeah, I'll talk about it here next. When I met my wife, I uh, found out that she actually had videotaped it off television as a kid, so she grew up watching it all the time too. So that's probably where I first actually saw the actual movie because I told her I liked the music and she's like, well, then you have to see the movie. And so we, we own it and we watch it periodically. It's, it's kind of a fun. But do you know there's actually a, there was a Broadway musical yes. based on Xanadu. And Strange Magic is actually And Strange Magic production. was an evil woman. Both yep. uh, were used in that as well. So they took all of Xanadu and added two additional songs. So Strange Magic was included in the musical version of Xanadu. Strange Magic in simplest terms, I mean, it's just a song about the allure of a captivating woman which magical songs seem to always be about that. And it, it, but, you know, it stands as Jeff Lynne's finest smoocher. You know, it's just the sound of a 1950s prom splashing out on the Royal Philharmonic for the dance, you know, for the last dance. It, it shovels along beneath, you know, I, I almost imagine a Carrie-like hanging bucket, but it's of cheese, <laughs> you know, just dribbling half-cut romantic poetry in our ear. Um, the lyric, it's suitably trippy, and very repetitious. I mean, the title appears five times per chorus, but it's redeemed by the audacity of Lynn being so enamored with this girl that he, he leaps into an exultant Bee Gees falsetto when singing the chorus. I mean, it's it's like Tom Cruise bouncing on Oprah's sofa, you know? And and that coming from a bearded brummy in the 70s, I mean, that was true love. But yeah, Strange Magic, it's it's a good description, really, for, for this song's sonics, too. I mean, you've already talked about, you know, the, the instrumentation uh, compressed to a tight 327 for the single release I mean, the song packs this intriguing array of harmonies and hooks and it you know while integrating the famous ELO string section 
So the weepy sounding guitar lick is, is provided courtesy of Richard Tandy, who, who somehow was persuaded to take his hands off of those various keyboards to pick up a guitar. Uh, normally, Tandy's array of Moog synth, clavinet, mellotron, and piano was so omnipresent that it, it led to the stereotype of prog rock bands having a, a stack of keyboards on stage. So, um, no, it's just a fantastic song. And I actually, very intentionally or deliberately on my list, I placed it immediately following Olivia Newton-John's magic, okay. yeah. So, yeah. which is my next. Are you done talking? Oh yeah, go right. That's a good transition. All right, let's, let, go. let's talk uh, Olivia Newton-John because. Um, and that is a match for me. I had that okay. on my list as well. Yeah, so you're you're hitting your alternates list at least the the one time there. Um, yeah, Olivia Newton-John. For well, for starters, she was my dad's free pass. Which is kind of gross to think about, but I mean, he was in yeah. The your laws. dad and Olivia Newton-John—that's yeah, kind yeah, of gross to is. think about. Incredibly gross, <laughs> but she—he was in love with Olivia Newton-John, and you know that you know just seeing his uh, his you know his celebrity crush. I mean, I, I soon became enamored with her in much the same way. It just kind of passed from father to son. Um, you know, Olivia Newton-John's name and face—they're familiar to generations of vinyl crate diggers. I mean. You find her. Uh, you find the Australian singer cheek to cheek with John Travolta. You know that soft smile on her face in the center of each copy of the Grease soundtrack, or or you see her big blue eyes beaming from the covers of an exceedingly successful run of albums. You know, and and like Sandra D, uh, like like her turnaround from the Cotton and Wolf Summer Nights to the Leather and Nicotine of You're the One That I Want. Newton John really she kind of evolved from an easy listening country pop crooner into this sex pot pop powerhouse. You know, over the stretch of, uh, well, really, it was about a decade. Uh, the transformation spread out over a decade of hit singles and cultural ubiquity that it kind of ran through the 70s and into the 80s. But, you know, her transformation into a full-fledged pop artist was complete when she signed on to star uh, in the roller disco film Xanadu. Um, it was it was actually one of several roller disco films that were in development at the end of the 70s. And, you know, with the incredible box office success of Saturday Night Fever and its soundtrack becoming the biggest selling album of all time, disco movies were briefly very hot commodities. Um, but the movie, you know, it's a fascinating artifact to look back on today. It, it's this bright, colorful musical that came out during a major transitional period in pop culture, you know. Uh, released a year after the collapse of disco, the, the film was... It was just clearly in the wrong place at the wrong time. Uh, Universal knew they were in trouble once the clock hit 1980 because, you know, disco had died an ugly death the previous summer, culminating in the famous, you know, the the infamous disco demolition that hit Chicago's Comiskey Park. And and the music business was still struggling to recover from the genre's crash. Um, But but suddenly, a movie that seemed like a sure box office hit when it was greenlit in the late 70s, it it was now a target for the disco backlash. the movie is, at best, uh, it's remarkable um, for its mixture of styles, really. It includes a quick animated sequence by future and American Tale director Don Bluth. Um, and, you know, it was the final film role for Hollywood legend Gene Kelly. Um, and But, you know, I, I love Xanadu, too. I grew up watching it, and that was, again, in part because my dad was so in love with Olivia Newton-John. But it was panned. I mean, it, it was a huge flop. Uh, upon its release. Uh, Esquire magazine, you know, they famously quipped Xana don't, you know, in in their review. Uh, And what many may not know is that Xanadu was actually the film that famously inspired the formation of the Razzies. Um, You know, the anti-Oscars that ridicule the worst movies of the year. The film was, of course, nominated for Worst Picture 
in the first annual Razzie Awards. I mean, it inspired the Razzies itself, although it lost to another misguided disco film, The Village People's Theatrical Dud of the same year called Can't Stop the Music. Did you ever see Can't Stop I the Music? I have not, no. I haven't either, and I have no desire to see it. <laughs> so, but, you know, while the film didn't score um, at the theaters or with critics, the soundtrack, you're right. I mean, it was just this double platinum smash, and it peaked at number four on the charts. Um, and, and for good reason. It was a marvel of disco pop and some perfectly over-the-top tunes from Yellow, uh, including the title track with Olivia Newton-John on vocals. And, and Xanadu, the title track, it, it actually hit number eight on the Billboard Hot 100. And that was, um, a, that was a mixture of ELO and, and Olivia Newton-John. That was John, one where yeah. they were on track together. Exactly. Um, but in addition to the tracks by ELO, um, which, which we've already discussed, Newton-John also brought in songwriter John Farr. Um, he had previously written three number one hits for her. Uh, he had written Have You Never Been Mellow, and both Hopelessly Devoted to You and You're the One That I Want from Greece. Um, this, this time with Xanadu, their fourth collaboration climbed the charts to become Newton-John's fourth number one hit. Uh, the song was, of course, magic, and it stayed at the top spot on Billboard for four weeks. Um, you know, I had to include magic on my list for today's episode. It, it's long been one of my guilty pleasures. Um, Olivia Newton-John herself is one of my guilty pleasures. I, I, I can't help myself. Um, she deserves, but, but really re- rarely receives credit for the legacy she's created in modern music history especially um, as she so capably and comfortably walked that line between country and mainstream pop, and she did it decades before Shania Twain, Taylor Swift, or the Dixie Chicks ever set foot in a studio, you know. Um, Her voice is patently unmistakable, pungent and deliberate at its most assertive, silken and serene at its most sensitive, and, you know, Newton-John's ace has always been her emotional appeal, which magic highlights perfectly. Um, Her whipped chiffon soprano on this track, I mean, it's... with its dreamy, alternating major-minor key melody as seductive as hell. And her overt sensuality just emphasizes the ethereal feel of its lyrics. Her performance on the verses in particular is just mesmerizing. movie, Newton-John was a muse. She was uh, one of the nine goddesses that gave artists, philosophers, individuals divine inspiration for creation. I believe her character's name was Kira. Mm -hmm. And she fell in love with uh, 
Sonny was his name. Yep, Sonny. Sonny. Yeah. Um, and and magic is actually delivered if you see the film. You know, in a darkened roller rink, she's on roller skates uh, in the spotlight, singing the song. It, it's so campy and kitschy, but it's it's pure. 80s love it know? i love it um yeah so i mean the movie it was a mess to be sure but it is it's a mess that i love and you know newton john was perfectly cast because her, her her beautiful voice is genuinely heavenly i mean she i have no it, there's no suspension of disbelief to think that she is a goddess you know in, in my in my mind and um and no one can change my mind on that so yeah my advice um you know if you are if you're a, a movie snob Skip the film. <laughs> no, but see, even movie snobs can appreciate well, a good cult true. classic. That's true. But, you know, I was going to say, I recommend you yeah, see it. Like Rocky because, Horror Picture Show. Yeah, it, it is. It's a, it is a B film. It's a cult classic, and it's it's just stellar in, in that respect. Uh, but if you haven't revisited the album since it's released in 1980, you're going to be very pleasantly surprised. Yeah. Oh, the and, album's just great. Yeah, and Magic. Especially it's, the yellow side. Yeah, it's just so alluring. I love this song. The Tube song, eh, but... Yeah, eh. I, the two, well, the Tube's... It's the one where the tubes yeah. and Gene Kelly go back and forth right, and then they yeah. mix the two. The only tube song that I really, you know, even credit uh, would be She's a Beauty from, from yeah, right. uh, what was that, 83? I think so. Um, but, you know, it did bring a new wave sensibility to the movie right. as well. There were so many clashing styles in Xanadu. Well, was, I think that was the point. Yeah, I mean, it was just crazy. Yeah, the song was at number one for four weeks. But then a year later, physical... Was at the top spot for yeah. 10 weeks. Yeah, Physical was her biggest hit. Which uh, I believe was the best-selling single of the 80s. So it was Physical. So that's crazy. Um, and by the way, uh, there's an interview with John Lennon right before he, uh, he passed. And the interviewer asked him if there was any new music that he kind of um, was, was into. And he mentioned Magic and uh, All Over the World from Yellow. Yeah. So even Lennon was a fan of the Xanadu soundtrack. <laughs> so if it's good enough for John Lennon, it's good enough for anybody. Yeah, well, can't deny that. All right. Well, uh, Olivia Newton-John. Yeah, and, and uh, that's the third. Of course, I said there were three magic titles in, in a span of ten years there in the seventies and eighties. Um, Pilot hit number four. The Cars, I think, hit what was it, thirteen, fourteen, uh, something like that. Go back and look. Um, the Cars uh, went to number twelve. Twelve. Okay, but Olivia Newton-John. Yeah, that was the number one. Well, it's the only magic. song in Billboard history titled "Magic." To reach number one, or to have magic in yeah. the title. Well, it's also the magic is the only word um, that has hit number one both as the title of a song and as the title or as the name of a band. Hmm, right. Because uh, the band Magic, uh, they had that huge hit a few years back called Rude, and yeah, it's the only word in the English language that has hit number one both as artist and and single. I thought that was pretty fascinating too. Yeah, very cool. All right, well, let's stick with uh, the early 80s. Why, why, why not? Um, 1981 from the fourth studio album by The Police. Yep. Every Little Thing She Does is Magic from Ghost in the Machine. Um, this one, it went to number one in the UK. It went to number three uh, in the US. And this was, was originally written by, by Sting in 1976, actually, before The Police were even really The Police. That early. Yeah. And it just, it wasn't, didn't, if you listen to it, I guess I agree with this. It's not your typical police song. No, it's not. It, it has, a, it, it predominantly features a piano. It's a little bit softer, I think, than other police Agreed. releases, especially yep. up to this point. And so Sting never brought it out for the band. But he always kind of hung around in his consciousness and he just, he knew it was a hit. He knew it was a hit. And so when they were, record, were recording Ghost in the Machine, he finally brought it out 
Um, and of course, the police are infamous for their infighting <laughs> and their just brashness with each other. Oh yes. And 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 the rest of the band, they weren't keen on it because, like I said, they said this isn't a police song; it's too soft. And so they tried it in all sorts of different types of styles. They tried a reggae version. They tried a bossa nova version. They tried a punk version. Nothing really worked. And finally, Sting just said, you know what, just humor me. I'm going to play the demo track. Let's just play over the demo track and see how it sounds. And so he just kind of called out the changes and everybody played, and that's what they went with. Yeah. And so it really is just the demo track uh, with the police playing on top of it. Um, it's, you know, I, I, I like it. To me, it's a police classic. I can't imagine, you know, having the police without this song. No, it's wonderful. And it's another one on my alternates list. So, yeah, it's one that... I really, those three, the cars, pilot, and the police, I just assumed you'd have. Yep, so I, yep. I put them on the, the alternates. And there's an early video for this as well. Um, they're actually down in the Caribbean where they where they um, record, George Martin uh, had a studio. They still have a studio down there. Not sure if it still exists, but um, they, they filmed down there. Of course, police are big reggae fans. And oh, so yeah. there's still kind of a, a Caribbean feel to this song rhythmically. And the video is great because the video is split between they're kind of playing live, quote unquote, live with a lot of the uh, the locals, uh, and then the three of them are inside the studio, um, kind of just messing around with the with the soundboard. Huge police fan. I, I love the police. Sting as a solo artist. I mean, there. I, I respect a lot of the, the choices he's made. He's done some phenomenal work artistically, but he never captured that magic. Um, <laughs> magic. Excuse uh, he, the pie. Yeah, he, he never captured, recaptured the magic of the police in his solo work, which was probably deliberate on his part. But yeah, I mean, they they just had this huge successful run and <coughs> just just love the band. Yeah, well, I, I suppose that part of it is because they did, you know, work as a trio. Even yeah. though they were very dysfunctional, they kept each other in check. Yeah. So, yeah, like you say, Sting, solo Sting is, is great, but without the other two members to kind of keep him in check, it's going to be a little bit different. Of course, he branched out with a lot more. I mean, I'm sure the other members would never want to do anything as jazz influenced as some right. of his solo stuff. Jazz, and well, he even went classical there with, you know, I mean, he has a very, he, he's went folksy and classical in some of his uh, choices, but... Now, every little thing she does is magic. It's perfect song on my alternates list, and definitely I was praying it would make our mixtape. Yeah, so. had to put it on. Okay, well, um, you know, I have this bad habit um, of always pushing my alternates to the end, and then I forget how many I need. But uh, my next two songs on my list, uh, you've they, they both in matches. So I'm going to hit my alternates now, um, but you've taken quite a few of those. Um, so I am going to... I'm going to go ahead. I'm going to go with uh, an oldie but a goodie. Um, it's actually uh, from a doo-wop 
group called the Clovers. Um, and um, yeah, it's just, it's another one of those songs written by lyricist Jerry Lieber and composer Michael, Michael Stoller. Um, you know, they, they were the songwriting and record producing uh, powerhouse in the 1950s. They found success as the writers of such crossover hit songs as Hound Dog, Kansas City. And then we have a match. Do we really? On the alternates list. Oh, okay. So we're good. Yeah. I, later in the 50s, you know, particularly through their work with the Coasters, they, they created a string of groundbreaking hits, including Youngblood, Search, and Yakety Yak, uh, that, that used the humorous vernacular of teenagers, sung in a style that was openly theatrical rather than personal. And, you know, Lieber and Stoller, they, they were the first to surround black music with elaborate production values, uh, enhancing its emotional power. Uh, Especially with, with like the Drifters and There Goes My Baby, which then influenced Phil Spector, uh, who studied their productions while playing guitar on their sessions. Um, they wrote countless hits for Elvis Presley. You know, they collaborated with other writers on songs such as On Broadway, written by Barry Mann and Cynthia Cynthia Wheel. They they collaborated with Benny King on Stand by Me. Um, you know, they, they were just Lieber and Stoller were just you know they they were you know partners that that just could could not do wrong. And in total, they wrote over 70 chart hits in, in the 50s through the mid-60s. They were inducted into the Songwriters Hall of Fame in 85, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 87. Um, the song that I'm choosing by them, and you've already said it's a match, so um, you probably saw it, the title there. No, I just know it had um, to be from, from the Songwriters, it had to be Low Potion Number 9. Yes, yes it Which is. I only didn't put on my list because I was sure you would have it. Did you? It was so actually, I'm glad you, because yeah, uh, we, yeah. Yeah, it was actually I can't believe it's not on your top yeah, 10. No, it was actually on my alternates. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, Low Potion Number 9, you know, it was, uh, it was initially recorded by the Clovers, who were an R&B doo-wop group. Um, but then, like so many of these classic, uh, doo-wop groups, the, the African-American groups of, of the 50s, it was immediately appropriated and whitewashed and covered by so many white pop groups that, that you know, I'd be, I'd be hard-pressed to count them I, all. I was thinking it was the Coasters that had the big, but it's the Clovers. It was the Clovers. I don't know why I thought the yeah. Coasters, the Coasters had Coasters, the big version of no, it. No, the Clovers were the original uh, and, the, and the one that really everyone remembers. Uh, the Coasters did cover it, okay. but theirs is, um, it's very different in sound. Okay. Um, but yeah, uh, the Clovers, you know, they were one of the few doo-wop groups of this time period to cross over into rock and roll successfully. Uh, they started in 1946, actually, as a trio uh, of Armstrong High School students, that, that would be in Washington, D.C., and they underwent many personnel changes in the next four years. They initially recorded for Rainbow Records in 1950 and then changed to Atlantic in 1951, where they stayed for seven years and became known for their stirring live performances. Um, actually, Love Potion Number 9 was their last hit. And again, unfortunately, not, not that I don't like a lot of these other bands, um, but I'm, I'm just a sucker for the, the doo-wop and you know, I love R&B. The, the biggest hit, uh, the, the, the version that, that climbed the highest on the charts was actually by The Searchers, uh, which came out in 1965. It reached number three in the US. Um, but, you know, Pickwick Records then capitalized on the Searcher's success, and they bought the rights to some of the Clovers' old tracks and then released them as the original Love Potion Number no. 9 by the Clovers. So the Clovers actually had a renaissance after the Searchers took it uh, to, to, you know, top five. Um, the, the original song, and, you know, I was looking on Spotify 
just this morning to see if I could find the original version of the song. They have uh, the original single release by the Clovers, but I only found one uh, one copy, uh, one available track of the original recording, and it's actually an outtake, so it'll, it'll have to be on our alternates list. But the original song, you can tell it's the original version, the album version, because there was an alternate final lyric. Um, on the album version, uh, it goes, I had so much fun that I'm going back again. I wonder what would happen with Love Potion number 10. And the single release, the, the version you're going to find most often, it just repeats Love Potion number 9 uh, to the fade out. But it's just a fun song. You know, I, he's been a flop with chicks since 1956. He goes to the gypsy, Madame Ruth. She creates a love potion that works too well. He kisses everyone and everything until he kisses a cop and the cop breaks his bottle of love potion number nine. I took my troubles down to Madame Ruth. You know that gypsy with the gold cap too. She's got a pad on 34th and Vine selling little bottles of love potion number nine. I told her that I was a flop with chicks. I've been this way since 1956 She looked at my palm and she made a magic sign She said what you need is love potion number nine She bent down and turned around and gave me a wink She said I'm gonna mix it up right here in the sink It smelled like turpentine and looked like India ink I held my nose, I closed my eyes I took a drink I didn't know it was a day or night I started kissing everything in sight But when I kissed the cop at 34th and Vine He broke my little bottle of love potion number nine It never hurts to get some Lieber and Stoller on here. They, you know, there isn't a, a hit from the 50s that they didn't have a hand in, in creating. So I love the song. Cool. Very good. All right, well, let's go. 1968's a big year, it seems. I pick a lot of songs from 1968. So I'm going to go with The Who. Magic Bus. And their single, Magic Bus. Yes, sir. Match? No match? Just Not a match. I probably I, have it was just a big it was who, one I needed to have. Yep. Uh, it was written by Pete Townsend in 1965, although it wasn't recorded at the time. They, they waited several years until it was recorded and eventually released as a single in 68. Um, I would argue it's the greatest rock song featuring Clavs. Yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, the the you know, I guess Paul Simon did a little bit with some of some of the Latin yeah. you know rhythm instruments, yeah. but yeah. this one, well, Billy Joel's "Don't Ask Me Why." Oh, that's true. Yeah, no, that's but true. Um, yeah, they're not used often. Right, right. Yeah, uh, it was a modest hit in the UK and the US, and only reached number twenty-five in the US charts, so it was never a big hit, but became a huge live staple for the Who. And uh, I think there was a promotional film I remember seeing on MTV at some point. Um, I think it was in black and white where they're performing or at least lip syncing. But if you really want like the mega version, the live at Leeds version is almost eight minutes long of Magic Bus. So is it that long? That's one we'll throw on our alternates list too. Huh. I didn't know it was that long. Yeah. And really, it's one of those songs that I think people want to read into it too much. I'm sure people thought there were some type of drug, there's some type of drug metaphor hidden. Um, really, Townsend said no. It was just simply about a guy who wanted to get to see his girl and. Uh, wanted to buy the man's bus so he could get there anytime he wanted to. <laughs> Nothing more to it than that.
I'm not as big a Who fan as you are. Um, of all the British Invasion bands, they're probably my least. Really? Favorite. Yeah. How can and you I, say I, that? No, don't uh, don't <laughs> get me wrong. They're, they have they have songs that I I love, but yeah, as, as a as a collection, you know, looking at the discography, they just they don't do for me with the Stones, with the Beatles. Well, I will say there's there's 60s British Invasion stuff. I will agree. You could say right. the Beatles and the Rolling Stones were stronger. But when you start getting into the 70s material, yeah, no. and what the Who was able to accomplish in the 70s, Agreed, yeah. Uh, much better than the Stones. And of course, the Beatles didn't even venture into the 70s. Right, so. yeah, no. I just, I don't know. For, I, for whatever reason, they, their music, there's a lot of it I like, but there's none of it that I love. And it's, but, you know, I, I will give credit, and I'm sure I will have them on my list in future episodes, but this was one I just knew you'd have. Yeah. Um, but in fairness, I also didn't include the Beatles, so there's no Magical Mystery Tour on my list. Right, so, which, yeah, I thought about but didn't include. Yeah, I didn't include it. And I don't want to get hate mail from Rolling Stone fans. Rolling Stones did a lot of great things in the 70s, too. I just, I, I like the Who better, so that's, oh, that's just my fair. opinion. Yep. No. Um, what you got next? Done. Okay. Uh, yeah, there's not much to say about Magic Bus, nope. really. Nope. Just All a right. good song. Well, my next one, uh, I just, I had to. <laughs> I had no choice. Um you know, let's see if you can help me out here. As your body grows bigger, your mind must flower. It's great to learn because knowledge is power. It's Schoolhouse Rocky, the chip off the block of your favorite schoolhouse, Schoolhouse Rock. You're doing, you're doing something from Schoolhouse Rock? I am doing something from Schoolhouse Rock. Um, Drawing a blank, huh? You have no clue. Okay. Do you remember Schoolhouse Rock? I do. Okay. I do. All right. Well, I it, don't know how it fits with magic. Okay. You're not doing the magic school bus. That's a different kids' <laughs> no, educational different program. Kids, yeah. Nope. Well, maybe you don't remember this one. Uh, in the early 1970s, Bob Duro um, began writing music for advertising. And, you know, he was almost 50 years old, and he had already had a storied career as a jazz musician. Um, and he had several well-received albums to his credit, actually. But, but the reality was that advertising paid better than jazz. And as, Dar- as Doro told NPR in 2013, you know, he was there in New York City just trying to make a living. His jazz work was a little slow, and he was dabbling in advertising music just to make ends meet because at that time he was married, he had a daughter, and he needed the money. Well, David McCall, who also worked in advertising, had a problem that he hoped the jazz veteran could solve. He approached Doro and told him that his sons could not memorize their multiplication tables. Oh, so it was a math one. Yeah. Well, I didn't watch the math one. Oh. <laughs> That's fair. Okay. Uh, yeah, well, we're both English teachers. Math is the enemy. I like I, I like the history ones and the English ones, but yeah. not the math ones. Okay. Yeah. Uh, his sons could not memorize the multiplication tables, uh, yet they could memorize the lyrics to popular music with no difficulty, right? Uh, and he told Duro that, you know, they, they regularly sang along to Hendrix, the Doors, the Beatles. And Duro's challenge was to write a song or songs that could help kids like McCall's learn the multiplication tables. And, you know, while children were going to be the target audience, McCall gave Duro one more directive. He said, don't write down to children 
when when writing the songs. Um, so Duro's response was the song Three is a Magic Number. Do you remember that one? I, I told you it was yeah. a math one. I okay. would skip. I would go out and get something to eat or something. If it was math, I didn't want anything to do with it. <laughs> Cracked me up. Um, okay, well, his response was three is a magic number. And uh, it sang of the, of the significance of the number while also listing off multiples. Uh, the lyrics include, every triangle has three corners. Every triangle has three sides. No more, no less. You don't have to guess. When it's three, you can see it's a magic number. A man and a woman had a little baby. Yes, they did. They had three in the family. And that's a magic number. Um, and, and McCall, he was so pleased with the result that he passed it along then to his art director, who then set to work on an animation to accompany Duro's quirky song. And quickly, the project was no longer the record and workbook package that had been originally intended. D- Duro's song was actually presented then to Michael Eisner. At the time, he was the head of ABC's daytime programming. This was pre-Disney. And, and Chuck Jones, who had directed Looney Tunes and Tom and Jerry. And with their blessing, Three is a Magic Number became the pilot episode of a new series of educational videos for ABC called Schoolhouse Rock. It was the very first episode made. And at the encouragement of McCall, Duro continued then writing other songs for the series, and he branched out to teach grammar, history, and science. Um, debuting on, on, it was January 13th, 1973, the Schoolhouse Rock uh, premiered. Um, you know, it was not a show, but, but rather a series of short videos that appeared in between episodes of longer cartoons on Saturday mornings. And, and the inaugural week's song was My Hero Zero. The second week featured Elementary My Dear, which focused on multiples of two. But in the third week, on February 3rd, ABC aired the, the pilot, the song that inspired the whole project, and that was Three is a Magic Number. Um, ABC, you know, they aired the videos on Saturday mornings until 1985. So our, our listeners, if, if we're talking Gen X, everybody grew up with, with Schoolhouse Rock. And, and through Schoolhouse Rock, Duro continued to teach kids about a wide range of topics. Uh, he wrote uh, I'm Just a Bill. He wrote Electricity. He wrote Conjunction Junction. You know, that was my favorite. Yeah, I mean, he, he branched out. It wasn't just all, all the math. Um, he tried to revive his jazz career in the 90s, actually, and he, he released Right On My Way Home in 97, but you know he kept recording and touring into the 2000s, releasing a few live albums, but despite his diverse resume, Duro told the Washington Post that he could no longer be taken seriously as a jazz composer. Um, he finally resigned himself to the categorization of children's composer, for which he was best known. And still today, he's primarily associated with the animated series he helped to launch. He's actually amused that, you know, he would still play jazz clubs, but waiters and patrons who would be 25, 30 years old, they would nightly say to him, your voice sounds familiar. And once the light bulb would go off over their heads, they all they wanted him to perform for the rest of the night were his schoolhouse rock compositions in the jazz club uh, for the remainder of his sets. Well, since that time, because I'm not going with his original version, um, but since that time, artists who grew up watching Squash Rock have increasingly covered and performed the songs they loved as, as kids. And then in 1996, a proper tribute album based on the Emmy Award-winning animated TV series was actually uh, released. It, uh, it was released by Atlantic Hollywood Records, actually. And then current artists, they, they performed their favorite songs from the series, Better Than Ezra, Manned Conjunction Junction, the Lemonheads covered My Hero Zero, Ski Low. What year did that come out? I, 96. Yeah, I had that. 96. I had that. Yeah, Ski Low sang uh, The Tale of Mr. Morton, 
but definitely the most moving performance. And I'm, I'm not a fan of the math songs either. I mean, I, I tend to lean toward history and, and grammar. But the most moving performance on that compilation, uh, Schoolhouse Rock Rocks from 96, was without question Blind Melon's very earnest, unassuming three is a magic number. Um, Shannon Hoon's delivery, I mean, it just suggests, you know, it suggested that he probably sang the song several times long before he grew into a signature rasp. And in fact, Blind Melon did regularly include the song in their live sets uh, before, you know, contributing to the to the compilation. His performance became even more heartbreakingly nostalgic given that just months after the compilation was released, Hoon died of an overdose. He was just 28 years old. Um, the actual album, Schoolhouse Rock Rocks, a portion of the sales of the album went to the Children's Defense Fund, um, you know, which is an American nonprofit organization focuses on child advocacy and research. You know, since its founding, the CDF, you know, they've lobbied for passing legislation related to goals including, you know, the, the uh, Education uh, for All Handicapped Children Act in 75. We know that today is uh, Individuals with Disabilities Education Act. Uh, the Adoption Assistance and Child Welfare Act of 1980. You know, its legislative interests also include Head Start, Medicaid, Children's Health Insurance Program, CHIP, uh, the Child Income Tax Credit. But, um, yeah, Blind Melon's version of Three is the magic number. It, it is just, it's so damn catchy. I mean, it is, it is probably one of the most infectious songs uh, to come out of the mid-90s, and it's, it's a cover of Schoolhouse Rock. Three, oh, it's the magic number. Yeah, it is. It's the magic number. Somewhere in that ancient mystic trinity, you'll get three. It's the magic number. You actually, you probably don't remember, um, folks, uh, for both of my sons, I, I, we've commented that I'm Jewish before, but for both of my sons, uh, Dave's gift for their bar mitzvahs uh, was a, were, were the uh, video uh, collaborations of all the pictures of them growing up and the videos uh, accompanied to songs. For Joel's, my oldest, this was the song that started that video. I had you actually oh. take... Uh, Man I'm sure that I have a little baby. I'm sure yeah. I'll recognize. Yeah, it you'll re you'll recognize the song without question. But yeah, I had to. You know, it's kind of it's it's pure nostalgia. But I three is a magic number. If we're doing a magic playlist for Gen X, it can't it can't hurt to include some Schoolhouse Rock. So uh, it was on my alternates list and didn't really think I'd have an opportunity to use it. it is the compilation on Spotify? Did you check? Yes. Oh, cool. Yeah, right, it yeah. is. So yeah, and it's just. I, mean, just I, I know I had it, or at least I, I I borrowed it from the library back in '96. I know that I listened to it a few times. It yeah. just no, escapes it, my memory at this yeah, point. Yeah, no, it's it, it's just so much fun, and yeah, Blind Melon's performance. I mean, it's I 
I, it's one of those songs I can still put on and it just makes me smile. So I, All right, good. Yep. So long history there of Squash Rock just to get to Blind Melon and their contribution to a compilation. You didn't even bring up the girl in the bee outfit, so I'm proud of you. I did not, no. All right, my next one is from another artist we talked about a few weeks ago, and that is America. Oh, I thought about including this one, and I didn't. Yeah. So. I, I dig this song. I really do. Yep. It's it's America's last hit. Um, I think right about, I think it was 77 or so, Dan Peake left the band, so he went to pursue a career in Christian music, so it left just the two, so the trio was now a duo. And they had a few albums in between the time that didn't chart, but then they finally came out with a hit in 82. So I kind of, it's nice to kind of top off their career with uh, with a song that uh, actually went uh, to number eight on Billboard. Yep. And, you know, lyrically, it's still not uh, Bill Shakespeare, but it's kind of gotten beyond the heat was hot. And there were rocks and plants and stuff or things. Yes, uh, they, they've, they, 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 they had gone a long way. They've so. gone a long way since that. Um, but yeah, it'd been six years actually since they had a hit on the top 40. Um, and, and this is one I just, I remember listening to uh, at an early age on radio. That's what I love about, you know, some of these late 70s, early 80s songs. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's an adult contemporary sounding type of, you know, pop hit. But uh, it's a good song. It's a great song. Never actually named it. I didn't. No. Oh, I. You, I you, can, you can do magic. Okay. Yeah, yeah, you can you do can magic, magic by America. <laughs> I kept waiting. I forget yeah, that. I just assumed like, everybody knew what I was talking yeah, about. You can no. do magic. You can do magic by. Yep. By America. No, it's a great song. I thought about including it, but again, I was, I was coming in this week with five alternates and done. So I, because I never do that, and I just wanted to challenge myself. So that one uh, did not get included. But yeah, it's it's just a fun song. It was it was their last hit and. Okay. Uh, I would say, really, just just as good as anything they they put out in the seventies. I mean, it, it fits on the yacht rock it playlist. Does, yeah. I mean, but, but, but it's I'm, a good song. I'm, but I'm a huge fan of yacht rock, so yeah, yeah it's not fantastic contribution. I love it. All right, well, this one, I don't even know if you know that I'm a fan. This one might surprise you a bit, um, but my next song is actually by Susie and the Banshees. Um, you know, I remember it. I, it took me a very long time to uh, finally come around to the Cure. 
I remember in, in our dorm room, you tried to put up a cure poster, and I protested. <laughs> so, and uh, you pro- I don't remember your protest. Yeah, I protested because, frankly, they freaked me out. You know, it's like I think what was it? The head was, on the door uh, album yeah, cover, probably. Three, you know, three Edward Scissorhands staring down at me from the ceiling. It just kind of freaked me out a bit. <laughs> but I've come a long way since then. I, I love the you know the. Well, I had to make you had to make some room in between all the poster girls that you put up yeah. that, that we had to take down when my grandmother came to visit. That, that's true too. Yes, um, but <laughs> Susie and the Banshee though I mean you know unlike anything that had come before uh, they they hitched haunting music to mysterious apocalyptic lyrics and really um, you know they, they, they were right there with the with the cure they, they all but invented golf well yeah and in, in fact the cure um, kind of started out doing more of a buzzcocks type of thing right. which is more of a post-punk um, type of deal and they actually opened for Susie and the Banshees on a tour and, and that's when Robert Smith kind of identified the sound right. that they were they, they truly kind of wanted to go for so really in a, in a way Susie and the Banshees are responsible for yeah. the cure that we know today yep well the band's fourth album uh, 1981's Juju um, actually it's pronounced they pronounce it as Zuzu mm-hmm. um, it, it remains the chameleonic post-punk outfits really their, their landmark release um, you know it's dark it's sexy it's enticing it peaked at number seven on a four-month UK top 40 chart run uh, and it bewitched and bewildered the post-punk generation it attracted reams of critical acclaim and really cemented uh, the Banshee's reputation as one of the most exhilarating and distinctive rock acts of the early 80s um, now, the dictionary definition of juju is, one, an object venerated superstitiously and used as a fetish or amulet by tribal peoples of West Africa, and two, the magical power attributed to such an object. Um, so, you know, juju involves some sinister, scary goings-on, but there, there's something compulsive and strangely sexy in its undertow. It's kind of like as Cole Porter might have phrased it, you know, let me live beneath your spell. Do do that voodoo that you do so well. Uh, the album is arguably the most horror-filled of the Banshee's discography, I mean, with songs about voodoo dolls, demonic possession, prostitution, psychological terror, and even <laughs> Wait a even read, read that list again. <laughs> oh, I had fun making this list. No, read the list um, again. Yeah, okay. Uh, uh, it includes songs about voodoo dolls. Demonic possession, prostitution. Is that the one that caught you? Well, and then, then what's the next one? Psychological terror. Yeah, well, like like that. Just yeah. Which one doesn't belong here? <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, and and even uh, on Halloween, uh, a murder. One of the tracks tells of a serial killer on Halloween. Uh, well, the prostitution song. It, it's very dark and it, it turns very macabre. Um, but it is about uh, you know females being targeted as victims in, in the song. Um, you know, but all of these, I mean, it's, it's brilliantly done with lyrics that, you know, so authentically creepy that, that you could almost be forgiven for thinking that Susie grew up in the bowels of hell rather than the, the Kent suburbs. The album's masterstroke, though, is in allaying such gloomy, suspense-filled material with just the best melodies of their career. And, and music with so much adventure, it seems to fire off in a new direction from one minute to the next. And the opening track of the album kind of sets the stage. That track is called... Spellbound. Finally, I was gonna I was gonna accuse you of the same thing, yeah. but you Spellbound. were just leading up to it. Yeah. Yes, uh, the, the mesmeric uh, Spellbound. I mean, it was the album's lead single, and, and the song pivots on an almost flamenco style acoustic rhythm guitar track, upon which the band layer gloomy atmospherics, twisty psychedelic uh, lead guitar bits, and and Susie's formidable banshee wail of a voice. And, and from start to finish, the song is pure exhilaration. It's easily one of the very best that the group ever recorded. And it also includes some of Susie Sue's most haunting lyrics. It deals with a sudden and terrifying loss of control. 
really. Uh, from the cradle bars comes a beckoning voice. It sends you spinning. You have no choice. You hear a laughter cracking through the walls. It sets you spinning. You have no choice. Following the footsteps of a ragdoll dance, we are entranced, spellbound. And, you know, the song plays like a great horror film in itself, really. Uh, it starts tense and then continues to build terrifying imagery on top of the already existing gloom. It remains one of the band's most arresting and, and best-loved tracks, and, and for good reason. Um, you know, everything seems to shimmer. The, the chords, outlines, you know, they're, they're as hazy as a mirage. And, and Sue, she bellows her way through a tale as ominous as it is entrancing. Uh, the song... You know, it richly deserves just its exalted reputation in the post-punk pantheon. Uh, luminaries from the Smiths, Johnny Marr, to Red Hot Chili Peppers, John Frusciante, um, and Sway's Brett Anderson, they've they've continued to sing its praises. And, and the Smashing Pumpkins, Billy Corgan, he's insightfully asserted that Spellbound, and really the, the entire album from which it comes, that, that, you know, it unlocked certain rhythms and feelings that are still felt in alt-rock today. Beckoning voices and spinning You have no choice Yeah, Spellbound, it's just, especially that tribal beat. I mean, it, you stumble to the dance floor on that tribal beat, and by the end of the song, Budgie, which is uh, the professional name of, of the drummer of, of the Banshees, it sounds like he just throws his whole drum kit down the damn stairs. I mean, it's, it is a very just dark and frenzied song. And yeah, it's, great it's track. Just, it's a wonderful tune. Another so. one that could have been on the Halloween list. Yeah, well... Just think of all the songs I didn't include that could be on the Halloween. Halloween. You've used most of the witch songs. There are a couple. That, well, that, there's yeah. one by the Eagles I very intentionally, yeah. very deliberately yeah. did not include. But uh, witchcraft, I, it, it's so closely aligned. I, I get why you didn't include them, but in my mind when I went magic, witchcraft just kind of, kind of, it just, it was a match. So Yeah, I'm thinking Top Hat, You're cape, thinking Magician. I, I went there too. Bunny. Yeah. Abracadabra was on my list. Yeah. Um, Sawing Woman in Half. Well, that in itself is kind of morbid. Don't well, you think? yeah. But. <laughs> so, um, yeah. Oh, you're okay with sawing people in half, but you know, wanted me to stay off the. It's broom. a trick. Still wanted me to stay off the broomsticks. I, I, I get it. Okay. <laughs> no, it's all good. It's all good. All right, your next pick. Next one, uh, boy. We have a lot of artists that keep popping back up. This is uh, John Sebastian, Love and Spoonful. Oh, do you believe in magic? Do you believe in magic? Yeah, great yeah, song. I, another I, one. I can't believe you didn't have it. Early I, rock and roll song. Sixty-five. I, I didn't even think of it. Really? No, yeah, I didn't. I, 
I thought this and love potion number nine would be like your first your time no, too. I didn't even think about it. I'm yeah. kind, of, kind of ashamed of myself for not thinking of it. From their debut album in '65, it, it hit number nine on Billboard. Songwriter San Sebastian actually, do you know this? He sped up the three chord intro to what particular song? And once you hear it, you'll never unhear it. Hmm. Not often you can stump me on '60s music, but I'm I'm, I'm drawing a blank. I, I, Heat wave. Is it really? If you take the chords to Heatwave and you speed them up, that is the intro and the chords to. Oh my God, you're, you're Do you right. Believe in magic? I mean, I'm playing both in my in my my head right yeah. now, and yeah, it, it is. It's exactly the same. Yep. I yep. never I never realized that. Huh. And the song's really kind of about the magic of music and how the 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 magic of music from the creator yeah. to the listener, and then the listener from what the creator has to offer, and kind of that communication and that emotional bond uh, that music can bring between people. And um, yeah, it's another song that just uh, featured a lot of commercials for whatever reason. Songs oh, yeah. about magic uh, it's are very popular away. in commercials and so forth yeah. throughout the years. Great addition, yeah. Um, can't believe I missed it. Okay, well, my very last song, and I'm back on my list now, um, which leaves me with really it's it's two alternates that I didn't get to. Um, but 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 my last song proper on the list is a song by Heart. Oh, and that's a match really? on my alternates on your list. Alternates, mm-hmm. Okay, um, yeah, my my uh, final song is Magic Man by Heart. Um, Written and composed by Anne and Nancy Wilson, uh, Magic Man was the second single from Hart's 76 debut album, Dreamboat Annie, and it was actually their first top 10 hit. It reached number nine on the Billboard Hot 100. Uh, the song is sung from the viewpoint of a young girl who's being seduced by an older man, referred to as a magic man, uh, much to the chagrin of her mother, who calls and begs the girl to come home. I mean, that, that's the song. Uh, Anne Wilson has revealed that the magic man was her then-boyfriend, um, band manager Michael Fisher and that that part of the song uh, well the song in its entirety really is just not a biographical tale of the beginnings of their relationship um, she just wrote about what was happening and there's no you know no deeper meaning here uh, according to Anne she was living at home going to art school and existing in what she called quote a very staid suburban state of being and then soon she she met and fell in love with Mike Fisher uh, the titular uh, magic man. Not long after the two began dating, Fisher moved to Canada um, to avoid the draft during the Vietnam War. And Anne left the comfort and safety of her parents' house and moved to Vancouver with him uh, to live with him. And the line, come on home girl, mama cried on the phone. Uh, it, that was just an often repeated plea by her mother after the move. The line, try to understand mama, he's a magic man, was of course Anne's actual real life response. And Wilson says that uh, her mother 
really did, though, help keep her grounded when she was being rather irrational and acting under the spell of her magic man. What's most magical about the track is uh, that two-minute instrumental break uh, right there in, in you know the middle of the song. It features a guitar solo and a, and a Minimoog synthesizer. Um, sadly, that, that break is removed uh, from the single release. Uh, it cuts the length of the song from 528 to 329. I think the break is like over two minutes on yeah, the album version. Uh, just over. Yeah, it's two minute, 201, I, I think. Um, but that, instrument, that, that instrumentation during the break, is it's just... Oh, it, it's hypnotic. I mean, the music and the effects, it conjures in my mind anyway, imagery of the supernatural, really. I mean, it's the best part of the song. To me, that's the magic of, of Hart's you know, first charted hit. Um, so yeah, I definitely want to, well, we usually do include the, mm-hmm. the album versions anyway, but yeah, that, uh, that instrumental break is just phenomenal. So Magic Man by Hart. Yep, that was, my, that was on my alternate list, so. All right, well, the, the two um, alternates that I did not get to, I had Magic by Bruce Springsteen. That's on my alternates list. Um, which really is just a scathing, really. It's a, it's a scathing, um, you know, uh, critique, if you will, criticism of, of the Bush administration. But it's awfully prescient because a lot of what's going on in that song is doubly relevant in, in you know, the world of today's administration and i also had magic carpet ride by that's another one of my alternates so those are the two that i did not get to but otherwise every song is on our mixtape and i need to choose one from my alternates list to replace magic from olivia newton john and so you already took magic man uh you mentioned magic carpet ride which is one i could consider um which really i I, do know that's basically written about their new stereo system that yeah, they bought. Yeah, that's exactly what it is, yeah. Uh, their new hi-fi system, because they were experimenting in the studio with some different sounds and so forth. So, yeah, it kind of went from, hey, this really sounds good on my stereo, to Magic Carpet Ride. Yeah. Um, and, well, the, and actually, the line, I mean, he played the demo on the stereo, and that's where the the actual line, I like to dream right between my sound machine. Right, That's right. where it comes from. There's yeah. actually a version that uh, John Kay does with uh, Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five. Yeah, in 1988, and, kind of inspired by the whole Aerosmith, Aerosmith uh, Run, Run DMC, DMC thing. Yeah, so I'm, we'll put that on our list, on our extra playlist. Yeah. No, and actually, we should probably put on Bedlam's version too. Yeah, um, Tarantino, I think, is the only person in history that has ever actually given credit to the song, but theirs is. Yeah, it's hard rocking. Yeah. So, and then uh, you mentioned Magic, which, like you said. Uh, deals with the Bush administration, but I think specifically to the war, the, the wars that we were entangled yeah. during that time period. In fact, Bruce even said, uh, the song is about living in a time when anything that can be true can be made to seem like a lie, and anything that is a lie can be made 
to be seen true. And I'm thinking, boy, that is probably not. I'm, I'm sure that's more pertinent today, 13 years later, mm-hmm. well, than it definitely. was back then. Yeah. Um, it just, yeah. Yeah. What? With social media and with the propaganda, it is. And, and, and of all the lyrics of all the songs that I've chosen, this one, it's a metaphor, of course, but it's most closely aligned to, to, ma- to the magic that I was going for, yeah. well, the magic yeah. trick, the sleight of hand. Yeah, because, well, you know, at face value anyway, it's just a carnival show's creepy testament of prowess. You know, I'll cut you in half while you're smiling ear to ear. It's, you know, but, you know, then it, you know, it, it just shifts there toward the end. You know, it, it, you know, in the fourth verse, the imagery changes from card tricks and rabbits and hats to bodies hanging in trees. You right. know? And it's the, the heart of the entire album, Springsteen said. You know, it's how politicians use misdirection and sleight of hand to shape people's perception of the world and justify all sorts of misdeeds. So, yeah, I mean, 2020, it's never been more relevant. So, And, and you know, it's not, a lot of Springsteen's later stuff is a little hit, hit or miss. Um, this is one of my favorite of his later albums. Oh, hands down. It, I mean, it's, it's, it's a very, very strong record. Yeah, I, I, I love it. In fact, one of the most underrated gems by Springsteen, and it, if we ever do just a pure summer uh, mixtape, definitely will be included by me as Girls, Girls in the Summer Clothes. Clothes. Oh, yeah. I love Incredible. that song. That, that's, that's one of my favorites of his post-9-11. You know, that's kind of, I kind of divide his career into, um, you know, his... Pre-born in the USA, he's post-born in the USA, and then uh, oh, definitely post nine yeah, eleven stuff. Well, you know, and what what's so fascinating about Springsteen, and we've talked about him before. We, well, I'm sure we'll do an artist spotlight on Springsteen at some point. But you know, and he he's he was never hip in the '70s, which is the ironic part of it all. But but in the 2000s, he's just gained a considerable following among indie rock bands. You know, like the Hold Steady, the Killers, the National. And, and the everything but the kitchen sink arrangements of his 70s albums can also be heard in the, the indie bombast of St. Vincent and Arcade Fire. I mean, he's just... But but he, unlike, you know, his contemporaries, Prince, Madonna, I mean, he, he has stayed relevant. Yeah. And, you know, he's he's for all time. He brings... I mean, he's... He is... Make no, make no mistake, he is a lefty. But he... You know, his charisma and his, his prolific songwriting ability, he brings people from both sides of the aisle to every concert and they cheer him on. I mean, he's just, he's it's just, Bruce. it's Bruce. Yeah. But I'm going to choose, um, a song that was written for the, the movie Highlander. Uh-huh. Okay. A kind of magic by queen. Yeah. I, you know, I, I considered that one and I had to let it go. Um, but I'm, I'm glad you're included. I, it's a fun song. It came out in 1986. This was the, uh, the this is the very end for, um, for queen with, with Freddie Mercury. Yeah. Um, the song was written by Roger, uh, Taylor, um, uh, who was famously, uh, who famously wrote uh, I'm, in I'm in Love With My, my Car, car. <laughs> uh, as, yeah. the, as the movie kind of highlighted. Um, but this was, was written actually for the film Highlander. There were a couple um, tracks. In fact, Queen may have contributed to the entire soundtrack. I know I think they did. I know Who Wants to Live Forever, of course, was, was huge, and this was another one. Yeah. This actually played in the credits uh, of the film. Uh, it was a huge hit around the world, but it really failed to crack the top 40 in the U.S., um, yeah, the, the Queen just never quite made it after. They had a few early 80 hits. Um, um, Crazy Little Thing Called Love. Oh, that one obviously. was huge, yeah. Another One Bites the Dust, those type of, of early 80 songs. But once they were once they were banned from MTV temporarily well, from um, I Want to Be Free. Yeah, they dressed in drag in one video and they were done. They yeah. kind of, they, they, they just really kind of ignored <clears throat> the American market for a while. I think they were um, just kind of done. Uh, of course, Live Aid, Live Aid brought him back. Helped bring him back, and, yeah. and this video actually aired on MTV. Actually, um, Walt Disney Studios 
Um, do you remember the video? Oh yeah, where they yeah. turn into like animated characters, animated characters and they're singing. Yeah. Walt Disney Studios had a right. hand in that, but um, yeah, um, I, I like the song. I think it's representative of of the best of the later Queen. Yeah, uh, wow. works. So I'm gonna I'm gonna throw that one on. Cannot as well. argue with the choice. It's a kind of magic. It's a kind of magic. A kind of magic. One dream, one soul. One prize, one gold, one golden glance of what should be. It's a kind of magic. One shaft of light that shows the way. No mortal man can win this day. It's a kind of magic. I thought about including it. I just ran out of slots. So, no, great choice. So that's our list. We have our 20 songs uh, for Magic. And as I expected, it is it's it is a very eclectic mix. This it is. is. Gonna be f- this, this may be actually really hard to sequence. <laughs> so I'm glad we took that bit out after the first couple of episodes because our, our, our listeners will be here uh-huh, a long right, while as right. we try to figure this one out. But um, you ready to get to yep, it? Yep, let's get to it. We'll be right back after this. And we're back. And ladies and gentlemen, we have a magical sequence for you. <laughs> yes, we do. Uh, this one's a fun one. Um, you know, it's so eclectic that, you know, the the, the sequence, the, the transition and segue is, it's not as clean as usual, but it, but it's, you know, it, it works. And, and it bounces back and forth. Yeah, it's nice. It's, yeah, I like it. it. It's very cool. Um, all right, well, we, we begin side A of our mixtape with I Put a Spell on You by Screamin' Jay Hawkins. And that leads into Black Magic Woman, Gypsy Queen by Santana, followed by Magic Bus by The Who, That Old Black Magic by Bob Dylan, Rivendell by Rush, Do You Believe in Magic by The Lovin' Spoonful, Magic by The Cars, Abracadabra by Steve Miller Band, A Kind of Magic by Queen, and Side A ends with You Can Do Magic by America. Side B begins with Magic by B.O.B. and featuring Rivers Cuomo. Three is a Magic Number by Blind Melon, followed by Every Little Thing She Does is Magic by The Police, Magic by Olivia Newton-John, Strange Magic by Electric Light Orchestra, Season of the Witch by Lana Del Rey, Love Potion Number 9 by The Clovers, Magic by Pilot, Spellbound by Susie and the Banshees, and finally, our, our closing track is Magic Man by Heart. And so, what are we going to title this particular mixtape? Well, Magic is too easy. Yeah, it's too easy. <laughs> so, what about Abracadabra? There you go. <laughs> that was easy. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Let's do it. Um, yeah. All right. All right. Well, I believe that takes us to the soundtrack portion of the program. Yes. And... Like who goes first? I'll with, just go. Okay, yeah. We'll do the opposite of well. You can remember that. Yeah. The opposite. Well, that, that so you works. went first, so I'll okay go first. Um, 
You've just passed wind in front of someone you're trying to impress. The only way to recover is to play the happiest song that you can think of. What do you play? Hmm. Um, okay, you know what? I'm going to go... I'm going to go right there, mid-80s, acapella, jazz from Bobby McFerrin. Don't worry, be happy. Don't worry, I just uh, farted. Yeah. Be happy. Enjoy, that it, enjoy the, the smell. You, it's all wind. It's, it's all air. Yeah. Be happy. Uh, let the wind take you where, where it will. And I, I, like, I like that. All right. <laughs> so, all right. We should include our picks for these on the alternates we should. list. Have we we should. Start, we, we haven't been doing, been doing that. that. No, no, we should. Uh, yeah. um, all right. You are standing on the bow of the Titanic with your new love. What song plays? Sure, my wife would have a few things to say about that, but go ahead. Okay. What, what song plays as you extend your arms and imagine flying from the bow of the ship? Yeah, I hate that movie, so I'm not going <laughs> to think of a, uh, like a really good romantic like love song. Yeah, I was upset when that movie became the highest grossing film of all time. It, you know, anything that removes Star Wars from the list make, made me upset at the time. Of course, now it's Avatar. Avatar still is the I highest. don't know. I don't like Avatar either. Yeah, I'm not a big fan. I'm going to go with Teenage Fan Club, which, mm. is a, which is a band that was around, you know, when we were in college. Right. Um, I think on the radio station we played a few of their tunes, but I never really got into their back catalog until a few years ago. And now they are one of my favorite bands of the last 25 years. I only vaguely remember the, the name of the band. Yeah, there's some really, 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 really good stuff. Check them out sometime. Okay. Um, but there's, it's actually a more recent song of theirs, too, because they're still recording. They're still touring. It's a song called Thin Air. Hmm. It's, it's, it's incredible. It's probably my favorite song that I've heard in the last two or three years. Okay. Yeah, that would be a good one. Thin Air. Thin Air. Yeah, yeah. that's yeah. what I'm going with. I going with the dark horse here. Yeah, I'd, not going with the cliche this that's, time. That's one I do All not right. know. So, All right. Well, I think we have a few sponsors we need to mention before we exit. We do. Um, once more, we'll start with uh, the uh, the listener who, who sent us those, those wonderful face masks. Um, once again, if you are a listener of the show, if you go to Lazar Beam Yarns, L-A-Z-A-R, B-E-A-M-Y-A-R-N-S, Lazar Beam Yarns. Uh, you can uh, order face masks because still it's mandated pretty much everywhere. And, you know, you're supposed to wear a clean one every day, folks. And, you know, if you're like me, you don't like to do laundry uh, as often as I seem to have to do laundry. Um, so if you order a face mask from Lazar Beam Yarns, she is offering our listeners a 10% discount. Um, you just use the code. Uh, Gen X 10 and that will get you 10% off of any purchases uh, that you make from her Etsy shop and again very high quality the, the mask that she yeah, made I, for I us wear, and sent I mean, I wear to that us quite a bit. yeah it, it's very comfortable it has the, it's a good conversation piece yeah and it, it has the nose clip to, to secure it especially if you're wearing glasses to stop the you know the, the condensation um, can't go wrong so definitely take advantage of, of that if you're you know looking for additional face masks in the future um we want to again acknowledge jake allahan painting um they're out of the cleveland area they serve the greater cleveland area if uh, please you can find them on facebook look them up for all of your painting needs and lastly affordable live uh trivia affordable entertainment live trivia uh every tuesday night from 8 to 10 p.m um you just 
Uh, you don't have to be a member of the group, but um, generally we, we've been trying to provide the link to the game on our Facebook page so you can access it there uh, without joining the, the trivia group itself. But uh, it's free to play, $50 winner. Um, you know, you get a $50 uh, gift, $50 prize, uh, I score every week. Uh, it's an Amazon gift card, actually. $50 Amazon gift card to, to the winner each week. Got nothing to lose. It's a lot of fun. Um, you know, there's conversation and chat between players uh, as you play the game, opportunity to meet new people. Um, highly recommend it, and uh, you can be in friendly competition with, with you know, the, the hosts of, of Gen X Mixtape. I, I play every week, so uh, please come join the fun. Um, Next week, our next episode um, of the podcast is The Good Fight, uh, where we will uh, make a mixtape, uh, the ultimate mixtape for overcoming hardships, obstacles, trials um, of you know any kind, really, on your way to victory. So, kind of, kind of inspirational songs, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, very yeah. much. Um, you know, they're f- they're fight songs, if you will. Um, the Good Fight. So that that will be our next episode, and. Uh, other than that, uh, again, please, you know, email us, drop us a message. Uh, the drive to 25, folks. Yep. We have 19. Yes, The drive please. to 25. 25 reviews or ratings on iTunes, please. Yeah, please, please, please. And, um, you know, by all means, uh, if you want to give us a review on, on, you know, the social media platforms or, or you know, and, Drop us a line and through any context. That we welcome the dialogue, but Apple Podcasts, the reviews on Apple Podcasts really seem to um, be the best way for us to continue to grow our audience. So, uh, yeah, if you're willing, please help us out. Um, that's all I got. Yeah, I think that's it. Okay, another week done. Uh, another magical episode here on the Gen X Mixtape. And with that, it's hot funk, cool punk, even if it's old junk. Another mix of memories awaits next Sunday. But for now, press pause, lift the needle, and hit eject. But we will see you on the flip side.